Film Nerds and Aspect Radio present The Trial of the Dark Knight. A few opening notes real quick. All of the clips, music, or samples used in this show are property of their respective rights holders, be they Warner Brothers, DC Comics, Polygram Entertainment, Legendary Pictures, or Syncope. Although um, we won't mention the July 20th Aurora, Colorado shootings during the show, uh, those that happened during uh, a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises, um, we're of course all heartbroken by that tragedy. Um, all of us film nerds are continuously keeping the victims and their families in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, during the show, you'll notice my audio is a bit weak um, due to my own technical fumbling. Hopefully it won't prove too distracting, and I really do apologize. Uh, who am I? I'm Ben Stark, a filmmaker with Wonder Mill Films up here in Huntsville, Alabama. I write for Film Nerds and have appeared a few times on the movie podcast Aspect Radio. Joining me is Corey Kraft. Hey, I'm Corey Kraft. Uh, I'm a film writer with the Tuscaloosa News. Uh, I do a weekly DVD new release uh, column and co-host of Aspect Radio, Tuscaloosa, Alabama-based movie podcast you can find on iTunes. And Craig Hamilton. Go for it. Hi, I'm Craig Hamilton. I'm in Nashville. I work behind a desk um, and not any way related to film, although I do have a film blog called citizencraig.com, and that's about it. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, I just, uh, I'll, I'll throw out kind of what, how we're going to approach this. We're going to talk about every single Batman film, aside from maybe the 60s cinematic um, adaptation of the TV show. Um, and then, of course, the 40 serials. We won't be t- uh, talking about those. But basically, every Hollywood um, production of Batman. Um, we'll breeze through the, the Burton and Schumacher films, uh, and then we'll go a little bit more in-depth with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, and then we'll wrap up with a f- more in-depth discussion of The Dark Knight Rises. Um, and, of course, we're going to have uh, we're gonna be talking in-depth spoilers for every single film. So if you haven't seen Batman, Batman Returns, Batman the Animated Series, Batman Forever, Batman Robin, Batman Begins... The Dark Knight or The New Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if you haven't seen any of those movies, I don't know why you're listening to this, um, but also we're going to be spoiling them and talking about plot stuff. Um, so first I just want to kind of go around uh, the uh, table. We'll start with you, Craig, um, to talk about the f- your first experience with a Batman character, not just in the film, but also uh, comics, TV, and, and all that. My, I believe my first encounter came with the... Uh campy 60s shows um, which I thought were awesome at the time because I was a, a little kid and um, I was intrigued by the different various villains that um, they seemingly always had to fight uh, also I guess it was about around the time um, I started getting a few comics and uh, the first Burton film came out Corey what about you? Well the first uh, Burton film came out when I was three years old or so, um, so I kind of grew up with that around, uh, along with reruns of the 1960s television show, and then um, my first, I guess, I mean, I do remember seeing Batman Returns in a theater, and of course I was a big fan of the animated series, and soon thereafter uh, started reading comics pretty uh, pretty heavily for a, for a child. Uh, so it's kind of always around, I guess. I'm told that as a three-year-old, my parents probably irresponsibly brought me to see 
1989 Batman in a, in a cinema, but uh, I have no memory of that, unfortunately. I also started with the, the 60s TV show, um, a lot like you, Craig. Um, how old were you when the 1989 came out? I guess I was six. Yeah, me too. Okay, so we're about the same age. Um, yeah, so before that, uh, that's that's all I watched was the, uh, the 60s um, Batman show. And like you, I just thought it was awesome. It was just like a live-action cartoon. And my brother always talked about how dopey it was, my older brother. And then we went to see uh, Batman 89, and um, I was terrified by it, but I wouldn't admit it. And I still kind of held on to the Adam West Batman, um, saying that, it, you know, it was the cooler cooler one, uh, it was more accessible, but uh, eventually that came around to, to Burton. Uh, real quick, do you guys remember how awesome the Riddler was? It seemed like he was actually, like, the, the only really scary villain that they had on there. I mean, obviously, as scary as you could get on, on the Adam West show, but uh, I, I think that the Frank Gorshin uh, Riddler is, is just amazing, um, and I, I don't think Jim Carrey ever, ever got that close, but uh, I guess we'll talk about that later. You know what, what was scary for me, the, the one villain that I always think about first was, did you ever see the one with no face or whatever his name was where he had like a like a translucent mask? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That was the one that scared me the most. Huh, okay, no, I don't remember that one. He might have yeah. been in like two episodes. Okay. Um, cool, well, yeah, but then I also I got into, I got into comics because of Batman. After seeing Batman 1989, my mom bought me, bought my brother actually an issue of Batman... Uh, a really violent issue, and I was like six years old, uh, and it was for my brother, but he never read it, and he never got into comics, but I read it, and that was that was my introduction to um, Batman comics and comics, uh, superhero comics in general. I read a lot of Disney comics before then, so, uh, but ever since then, kind of like you, Corey, I've, I've been um, on and off reading comics uh, because, of, because of Batman, and I, I would, ex- would you guys agree that probably Batman was most people in our generation's kind of gateway into comic book reading? Yeah, I think if only for the reason of, of the sort of three-year period where you had both of the Burton films and the animated series sort of running pretty strong. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it's safe to say without the animated series, there would be no Darkwing Duck. Really? Uh, I mean, I might have to argue that Darkwing Duck was probably being developed before... Batman the Animated Series hit. Oh, well, there you go. So, I don't have my uh, IMDb in front of me, but... Actually, I do, but not looked up to that. Dar- Darkwing Duck is certainly uh, influenced by Batman. Um, and, and, honestly, uh, one reason I loved the Batman 60s show so much is that it, beca- it came on right after uh, the Zorro TV show that came on Family Channel in the early 90s. I don't know if you guys ever um, watched that, but it was, uh, it was just... Uh, my first introduction to kind of like live action superhero stuff and I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and of course Darkwing Duck is also influenced by Zorro and the, the Shadow. Um, can we just change the format of the show to become a Darkwing Duck retrospective? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Yeah, I'm down. What if they did like a really gritty... What if Nolan announced that he's gonna do like a mocap Darkwing Duck movie next? Like a Howard the Darkwing Duck? Right. But mocap, you know. Cool. Well, uh... All right, well, let's just go ahead and move on to uh, the 1990s Batman films that actually don't start in the 90s.
my life is really <laughs> complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. <laughs> vivid of a memory of seeing uh, the 1989 Batman in theaters as you guys. I was apparently uh, three years old when it came out, and, and I'm told by my parents that they, they brought me probably irresponsibly to see it at the cinema, but but because I was, I guess, so young when that movie came out, I don't really have the same sense of, of nostalgia that a lot of people do uh, about it. Uh, I will say that um, you know watching it much later on VHS... My family bought that when it came out, and, and watching it later, uh, you know, I did enjoy it. I, I, I think that um, you know Jack Nicholson, of course, is, is really fun as the Joker. The movie is a bit slow, uh, and probably remembered uh, fondly today, just as much for you know, the marketing onslaught that, that was sort of a benchmark of its kind uh, in 1989. But, but as as far as I guess being the uh, the first big screen adventure of Batman, big budget, uh, you know, well, uh, well directed and, and really, really entertaining, uh, movie. It, it's the first of its kind and it is, it is fun to watch. I, I think it's a bit slow, uh, now I, I don't like the interpretation of, uh, of Batman or Bruce Wayne, uh, as a character, though I do think that Michael, Michael Keaton is, is pretty fun in the role, um, but it, it is mostly, I guess, uh, notable for, for the music and the art direction and the tone that it's sort of the benchmark for, for the rest of these movies. Uh, it isn't a movie that I've seen terribly recently. Um, I don't think that uh, preparing for The Dark Knight Rises, I've watched all of the movies, uh, but this one, again. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not one that I have a great deal of nostalgia for, I think that I have more nostalgia for Batman Returns, um, being that I was, I guess, probably about six years old when that came out, uh, the age that you guys were when, when the first movie came out. Uh, so, so maybe that's why that movie kind of, uh, kind of hits me more than this does. Um, and, and it's not something that I revisit terribly much or feel the need to revisit uh, in the wake of uh, The Dark Knight, which I think has... Uh, better interpretation of the Joker, and, and certainly a better interpretation of Batman. Yeah, definitely, Craig. Yeah, the um, the toys, like you guys said, uh, I had the the Batmobile, and then I remember I had the uh, the Joker who squirted water out of his flower. Then, 
Yeah, so and, and that was back in the day when, like, okay, so the toys just started coming out along with the films, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a over the top. Like, I was at Target the other day and I saw like three different Batman costumes for the Dark Knight Rises, and it's ridiculous because he's only in like one. Yeah. Um, but back then it was pretty, you know, they just had a couple action figures. But, you know, sort of like Corey, I mean, I watched it a few times, but uh, I kind of put it away and actually. Remember, there was a couple of like things I remember from the movie, like when the guy gets like fried to a crisp, and oh, the, yeah. Joker, the Joker's like, "I'm glad you're dead." Or yeah. that was that's like the one line that I always remember. But it was actually um, I was in the band in college, and when we were on the road trip to LSU, we watched it, and I really got to ha have it like soak all in as a as an adult or pseudo adult, I guess. And uh, that's that's kind of when I really let it saw it for the first time again. Yeah, it's it's weird how um, looking at it as an adult, it is it does seem so slow and so stagey, and and you almost think that yeah, as a kid you would you would find it pretty boring. But I, I when I when we were kids, I, my brother went to see it for his birthday, for his like well, I guess it would have been his ninth birthday, and I and I went with him and with my parents. And um, like I said earlier, it was it was terrifying, especially that that part you were talking about where he fries that guy to a crisp. Um, but uh, but I really loved it, and when it came on, it came on you know TV or something like that, and I taped it on VHS. But I taped like Tiny Tunes after it on accident, and like cut off the second half of the movie. So I've seen the first half of Batman like I watched it like every other day for a year leading up to Batman Returns. Um, so I've got the first half of that movie like memorized. Uh, and I guess when I was a kid, the reason it wasn't boring was because of the production design. It just, it felt like there was always something to look at. There was always something to, um, to be entertained by, even if the, the cutting wasn't fast, even if nothing, even if it was just Jack Nicholson talking to his girlfriend. Um, so, uh, uh, that's one thing. It's, it's really hard for me to judge the movie now. Um, but I have a, I have a lot of nostalgia for it and I have a lot of, uh, um, I just kind of give it a lot, uh for that um i do think that uh well i guess what, what do you think of that what do you think of it now um you know I don't, I don't know that i've watched it since even since uh well i guess i might have seen it right after batman begins came out but it, it's fun actually because i mentioned we were on the on the bus on the way to baton rouge and i think most of the guys at least on that bus were saying the lines along with the the dialogue um, and and I, I feel like most of those people see that as a nostalgic kind of film for them as well. It's just, it's now in hindsight, it, it's fun. And at the time, it probably was, in a way, uh, had an impact like The Dark Knight did. Sort of dark and, and, and just sort of disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people felt like Burton nailed the Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns tone, um, which looking back, uh, I think uh, even Nolan didn't really go for that until uh, until probably this recent movie. Um, cool. Well, uh, let's uh, let's give a quick letter grades or star ratings. However, you guys qualify movies. Uh, give me your score for Batman '89. For the sort of movie that it is and the, being the first of its kind, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd probably give it. I, I'd say a B plus. Um, just for just for influence and just for being kind of kind of this fun and, and edgy and scary thing. 
the thing about Batman, I mean, I do think I, I do think Bruce Wayne has stuff to do in this movie. Um, you do kind of feel it does kind of go into the disconnect, um, although you kind of learn all all learn about his disconnect through Vicky Vale, who probably has a bit more of an arc. Um, clearly, Jack Napier has the strongest arc in the movie as a character, but uh, I, I do think that they um, that they give you plenty of little Bruce Wayne moments to. to kind of get to know him as a guy and he seems like uh you know he you almost do kind of like him probably a lot of that comes from uh, me being a, a fan of michael keaton's but um but yeah I, I definitely agree that in this film and especially batman returns batman is almost a piece of the production design and the story is kind of happening around him and looking at it that way and looking at it as a batman joker film where they are literally connected at the hip uh where you don't if you don't expect any story beyond that, um, and it, you almost look at it as an exercise in style and an exercise in uh, looking at Batman and Joker and, their, and what if they were kind of born in similar ways, um, I think it's a really strong movie. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I'd always look at the, at the VHS in the rental store, and somebody, I think it was Time Magazine, I don't think it was Richard Corliss, but somebody's pull quote for it was the best movie of the decade. Um, so when I was a kid, that's, that was like, I just assumed that was true. Um, so looking back, I know I, it's obviously not the best film of the 80s, but uh, I do I do still hold it in pretty high regard. I, I think I would still give it an A+, plus, uh, with the disclaimer that a lot of that might be nostalgia. Um, Craig, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I kind of agree. Like, I was at this... Um this, uh, I guess we call it a little seminar, not a seminar, but just a, a sort of Q&A with Michael Usland, who was the producer on, I believe, all the Batman uh, yes. films, and he, uh, he, it was a pretty fascinating hour spent with him, uh, but I won't delve into all that, but he talked about casting for Batman, and how they got Jack Nicholson, this home run hire for the Joker, and then they had to cast Batman, and it was such a, an, an ordeal trying to cast Batman because they, obviously, yeah, Batman is the the main character, although he d takes a back seat to uh, Jack Nicholson in, in the film. But they didn't want to uh, cast someone who was such a a big name as Jack Nicholson because basically on the on screen they're going to be fighting for the spotlight. Uh, maybe not in actual filming, but if you have too many you know famous people, I guess they kind of see that as a distraction. And they wanted to hire someone a notch below Jack Nicholson. When they came back with uh, Michael Keaton, Michael Usland admitted that he thought it was a, a bad decision. And honestly, I would have too. And I, I am not the hugest Michael Keaton fan, although I know he's got quite a fan club out there. But I think he's a decent Batman. Um, and, I, and I think it's necessary to have a Batman that uh, doesn't outshine uh, Jack Nicholson's The Joker even though that, like you said, that character has a, a better story and a, a more rounded story. But yeah, I think um, I would give it uh, probably three and a half out of four. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 like, I like Keaton as Batman. Um, I, I wish we had seen a little bit of more of the kind of edgy Michael Keaton, the you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. Uh, I wish we had seen a little bit more of that in this film and especially in the second Batman movie, uh, Tim Burton came back to direct the sequel um, in 
basically was apparently given free reign um, to kind of just play in the Batman universe in Batman Returns uh, in the summer of 92. I've been down here too long. It's time for me to ascend. From the sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. Excited, and I even read like the novelization. I think we went to the beach one time, and I just like read the novelization like four times when we were on the way. Um, and so I was I was really wrapped up in it, and uh, unfortunately, I never got to see it in the theater because as soon as all my friends saw it, the word got out about how gruesome it was, um, and uh, my parents didn't think it looked all that good. Just in general, they they said it looked really stupid. That was just their excuse. To shun you from the, uh, the violence. I don't even think they were, you know, in the know enough to know about the violence. I think they just saw the commercials and were like, eh, we don't want to take you that. But, uh, but so I didn't get to see it until VHS, even though I, you know, had the story memorized basically from reading novelization and, and all these other things. Uh, Craig, what was your first, uh, kind of experience with Batman Returns? And what did you think of it when you, when you did see it? Uh, honestly, I have a, a more of a memory of, uh, 1989's Batman, then Batman Returns, as far as the the film itself, and I guess that's a testament to which one I liked better. Um, the thing that comes to mind, though, when I think of Batman Returns, is uh, Danny DeVito's teeth and uh, Christopher Walken pushing Michelle Pfeiffer out of a window. But then again, who wouldn't, uh, given the opportunity? So, uh, you know, as a a film itself. <laughs> It's uh you know I, I kind of I'm not a huge fan of that one, um, but I, I don't know that I was exposed as much to it. Corey, so you said this was uh, this was almost your version of the '89 Batman, which uh, that's uh, I'm trying not to use the word pity here, but um, uh, tell tell us a little bit about what what that was like being a child to 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 watch this film and and uh, love it. Is that is that right? Uh, you know, like I said, I think I was six years old uh, when this movie came out, and um, and I was sort of bombarded. I was in the sweet spot, I guess, uh, for the marketing of this movie. The the poster was on the back of comic books that I read, and and, uh, and you know you couldn't really go anywhere without seeing uh, toys and, and marketing uh, for it. Um, you know, I had I, I did have all of the McDonald's Happy Meal toys for for this one, basically, but. Uh, you know, I, it was the sort of movie that I really loved when I was a kid. I, I don't know if that's just because of, you know, mostly probably for the thrill of seeing a Batman movie on the big screen. Uh, going back to it now, revisiting it, it's pretty evident how weird of a movie this is and kind of how 
how much sexual innuendo and uh, and just weird kinky violence and and just uh, Tim Burton not really paying attention to making a kids movie with this or, or making a movie that that is appropriate really for families. It, it is it's very dark. It's much darker than the first movie and, and much stranger. But uh, but I do have a soft spot for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the time, um, it was it was a huge controversy, the fact that there were Happy Meals and stuff for this movie, and then it came out, and it was, it didn't have sexual innuendo, they just, he just flat out, Penguin is just flat out, like, sexually harassing Catwoman, like, without any subtlety whatsoever. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's right there, there's, there's zero subtlety. Um, and, you know, the violent, the, he bites the guy's nose, the the guy, yeah, the guy's nose and blood sprays on the camera lens, um, and all that stuff, and and the, he kidnaps babies, um, and plans to drown them. Uh, it's it was all crazy. The fact that they got that into uh, a summer blockbuster that was this heavily marketed, and that was the same summer as Alien Three, which was also Fox wanted to turn Alien Three, the Alien series, basically into a blockbuster series and they i remember all, they had all these toys of ripley and the aliens and all this stuff obviously both in both cases it failed and it affect both franchises in basically in a very similar way um and when, when i did see the movie i hated it um i thought it was really boring there wasn't any batman in it um i was really grossed out by the penguin i liked michelle pfeiffer but that was probably just because i was starting to get to that age um and i didn't understand what christopher walken was doing in the movie um so when I revisited as an adult, um, I kind of went through, about 10 years ago, I went through and watched all of Tim Burton's movies again, and I got to Batman Returns, and I liked it a lot more. I can appreciate it a lot more now as an exercise again. Um, much less kind of enjoyable, but the music is fantastic, the production design is fantastic, and the miniatures uh, are fantastic. But as far as a film, I think it's 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 almost unwatchable in, in a story sense, and, and the writing and the the goofiness of, of the, the relationships is just it's just awful uh, and um, we'll get to Batman Forever later but uh, I might have something I might bring this back up then um, so let's uh, let's let's wrap it up for Batman Returns uh, Corey quick letter grade I, I still enjoy it uh, I, I you know I don't think that the interpretation of Batman in uh, these Tim Burton movies are actually the first four is, is to my taste, and Batman really doesn't have too much to do. But in in any of these movies, but just just for this being, I, I don't know, a weird, uh, quirky sort of thing with Christopher Walken giving ridiculous uh, line readings, and uh, and um, Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer just being totally strange, and and uh, you know, I, I I do have a fondness for it. I, I'd probably give this one give this one a B, uh, rank it slightly below. Um, the the '89 film, um, but but for some reason I do have a lingering fondness for this. If you if you if you had rated it higher than Batman, I would have bitten your nose. Uh, Craig, <laughs> what's uh, what's your star rating for Batman Returns? Uh, two and a half, probably. Yeah. 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 I would. I would. I'm probably right there. Honestly, I'd probably give it a C 
C plus, but then yeah, yeah. because of the soundtrack, I'll bump that up to a B minus. It's it's it is a wonderful Danny Elfman score, and a lot of the design is pretty awesome. Oh, and as cool as Batman looked in Batman '89, or as Keaton looked as Batman Batman '89, I think he looked even cooler in, in this costume, although it was just as immobile. I need a name. Batboy, Nightwing. What's a good sidekick name? Help me. All right, train me. Let me be your partner. Blast him! <laughs> I want to be close, but you won't let me near. I'm a part of this, whether you like it or not. Batman Forever, uh, released in 1995, summer of 95. Uh, uh, Batman Returns had made a ton of money, but they did have that backlash from the Happy Meals. Um, so uh, they decided to uh, go with a lighter tone, and I think Burton actually kind of opted out. I don't know if he was forced out or if he opted out, but I know that originally in the script for Batman Returns, they were planning on having... Marlon Wayans play a character that would eventually become Robin in Batman in the third Batman movie. Awesome. Um, that would have been fantastic. <laughs> but that obviously didn't work out. So like I said, Burton moved to being a producer for Batman Forever. And uh, not only did they get a new director in Joel Schumacher, director of The Lost Boys, which is the best shirtless saxophone scene of all time, um, they also... They also recast Batman himself with uh, Val Kilmer, who at that point was best known for Doc Holliday uh, in Tombstone and uh, a little jam called Thunderheart, which I actually made my dad rent um, and get and watch with me because I knew that that was going to be the next Batman. So, Craig, what was your uh, experience with with Batman Forever? Uh, I was introduced, I believe, I believe I was introduced to the stunning Nicole Kidman for the first time. Yeah. Is that Batman Forever? Am oh, I yeah. correct? Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, nothing else. Yeah. Uh, she w- was she in Days of Thunder? I think that was my first uh, my first encounter with Nicole Kidman. Corey, what uh, what was your first impression and first experience with Batman Forever? Well, uh, this came out in 1995, so I probably would have been about nine years old or eight years old when this came out. Um, And uh, this was a movie that I think everybody in in my age group was pretty hyped about. Uh, You know, you have um, a big, bright Batman adventure coming to the screen uh, after several years of being really into the Batman animated series. Uh, Then you have Jim Carrey, who had sort of captivated uh, the uh, American movie-going public by that point as as the Riddler, who was one of my favorite villains uh, in the... uh, in the animated series and in comics. And then also, uh, the appearance of Robin in this movie was pretty appealing, I think, to a, to a youngster. I mean, that all adds up. I mean, I had all the toys, and that all adds up to being, you know, pretty freaking amazing for a nine-year-old. Um, 
So at the time, I, I pretty much loved this movie. Yeah, I, I really loved uh, Batman Forever too when I first saw it. Um, <laughs> I remember very distinctly my sister and I having a conversation after talking about how great it was that Tommy Lee Jones was basically doing exactly what Jack Nicholson did, and that was great because um, we loved Jack Nicholson's Joker. Um, I, you guys probably didn't read this on IMDb, but uh, I actually wrote a version of this movie um, probably a little bit after Batman Returns. I actually wrote a, a script called Batman 3 Return of the Joker, um, and it was probably like 10 pages long. Um, it was a masterpiece. I'll probably shoot it next summer if I can raise the money on Kickstarter. But um, I was 12, 11 or 12 when this movie came out. So, uh, so yeah, I was um, like you, Corey. I was, I was kind of primed for it. Uh, I was ready for a more fun Batman movie, um, and Batman the Animated Series had really kind of uh, prepared me for more, more of an active Batman that actually jumps off of things. Corey, what do you think of Batman Forever now? Now I think it's a mess. Uh, you look back at this, and, and it's just, it sort of doesn't successfully mesh the unadulterated camp Joel Schumacher stuff uh, that we would get in an unbridled fashion in his next movie with uh, an attempt to sort of psychologically profile Bruce Wayne through the through Nicole Kidman's character, uh, which is half-hearted and poorly written. Um, you also notice that uh, it takes Two-Face and the Riddler, uh, takes two villains to basically do exactly what Jack Nicholson does by himself in the first movie, they're not really. They're they're both very derivative villains. They, you know, chew the scenery up, but not in as appealing of a way as, as Nicholson, of course. Um, I, I don't I don't like Jim Carrey in this movie, and I don't I don't like Tommy Lee Jones at all. I think the uh, interpretation of Two Face in this, as a matter of fact, just gets that character totally wrong. Um, couple that with a with a bland uh, Val Kilmer. Uh, sort of nothing, who makes no impression as, as Bruce Wayne, and, um, you know, uh, Chris O'Donnell just being involved with this movie at all, um, there's not much that I really enjoy about this one. Craig, what do you, what do you think of Batman Forever now? Uh, I think, um, I, I would compare it to a kiss from a rose on the grave. <laughs> Uh, if really? I may, um, no, I, 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 it's like a drug that's the high, but Brian, not the pill. It's, it's, it's like the song, the seal song that came out on the, the soundtrack that was all over the radio at the time, which is one of the things I remember and, about the movie, but, and thanks to Corey, I was looping it all weekend. <laughs> I actually saw a piece of this film, um, on TV, I uh, maybe a month ago. Um, and I had to change the channel. It was so, um, it, it, it was so infuriating. It, it was the, it was a scene with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey, and I thought initially I thought Jim Carrey's role as the Riddler was was pretty awesome, and, and he's still even as as stupid as this movie is, he's still pretty terrifying as the Riddler, um, if you can see past all the gyrations and um, Ace Ventura derivatives. But yeah, I think it's it, it it's only it's only um, outdone by the film that comes after it in in camp and. It's just a debacle altogether. I hated Jim Carrey at this point in my life uh, when I was 12. Could not stand Jim Carrey. Um, I didn't like Ace Ventura. Um, I hadn't seen Dumb and Dumber, which would later become a, a, a 
classic in my eyes. Um, but uh, I did not like Jim Carrey. I didn't want him for this. I remember hearing about Robin Williams playing him, and I was I was down for that. Um, and I, it still holds up. His performance still does not hold up for me. I, I cannot stand Jim Carrey in this film. I think he's horrible. I think uh, Tommy Lee Jones is horrible. I don't know what he's doing. Um, but Nicole Kidman, on the other hand, she goes for it. And if only she goes yeah, for it. I, I think she, I think she kind of, I think she's good in this movie. I think she got it. I think, I think her and Joel Schumacher went out for like martinis or something before the movie and he communicated to her what he was going for and she, she nailed it. Whereas everybody else was just kind of running around screaming. She might have had a martini. Um, I think Joel Schumacher had an apple tini. But. <laughs> Pomegranate. Um, so what do you guys think of Val Kilmer as Batman, Craig? Oh, I thought he was, you know what? If the movie didn't suck so bad, I would say he might be slightly better than Michael Keaton. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, of Kilmer as Batman. I think he's, his voice is, is awful soft. And uh, he committed, even at the time, I loved the movie, but even at the time I felt it was an unpardonable sin whenever he uh, visits Chase Meridian uh, in the Seal music video in her bedroom. Um, and she, like, says something about having a crush on Bruce Wayne, and he turned, and Batman, Val Kilmer as Batman, turns around and smiles. Uh, that, I, I remember that image was just, like, scarred. That was more scarring than the, the, the burned guy in Batman, or the nose-biting in Batman Returns. Uh, is this the one where the Batmobile drives up a statue, like, the, the inner-city, like, building, like, a, drives up a building? Or is that the, yes, oh, okay. yeah, it's yeah. I think Batman Robin has more statues as streets, but this one has the yeah. He's got the grappling hook. It's literally Batman driving down the street. Two Face knows that he's coming and just is dressed up as an old lady. Shoots at Batman and Batman drives up a wall. Um, it makes zero sense, but it looked pretty cool. I'll I'll I'll, I'll throw that to out be there. a fly on the wall in that in that screenwriting room. Well, I think, I think we'll go into this maybe a little bit more later, but it was probably less of a screenwriting room and more of a, a conference room at Kenner uh, or whoever was doing the toys and what the, what they could outfit the Batmobile with. Um, all all the, the, the hating aside that I'm doing on Batman Forever, I do think it's as good or bad or however you want to look at it as Batman Returns. I think it's equally as campy. The only difference is there's color. There's neon instead of just black and white drabness um which wasn't a problem in batman returns but i think that's the only difference here is that this one at least this one does go for a measure of character when it comes to bruce wayne and his relationship to uh to robin um and but i don't think the i mean i think the sexual innuendo is kind of turned down but it's still pretty basically there most mostly all provided by nicole kidman um so do you guys think this is any more or less campy than batman returns I think they're probably about on the same level. It's just not as enjoyably campy to me. Uh, you know, Batman Returns at least has the pretense of darkness and, and sort of a sort of edge to it that you don't typically see in, in more family-oriented uh, comic book films. Um, not that that's, you know, necessarily inherently a good thing. It's just probably more appealing to me at the age that I'm, I'm at right now. Plus, you don't have, I don't know, Jim Carrey and... Tommy Lee Jones vamping it up in in the uh, the split uh, Two Face hideout with Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar. They're doing whatever it is that they're doing. No, I think this this um, 
goes to an all-new level of camp. Um, Batman Returns is at least dark in its own way. It's got a, it, the, the art direction is definitely Tim Burton's, even though he's not the art director, but it's, it's definitely uh, his, his movie. Uh, and the, any camp involved in that movie is just not nearly as, as high as Batman Forever. Alright, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there that you, you might want to take another look at Batman Returns looking out for camp because yes it's darker visually it's darker tonally it's darker story-wise but it's still right no very campy. Yeah, there's, there's camp but uh, to me that the the tone neutralizes the camp if, if that's even possible because you've got okay I, like Corey I said you, yeah. the color the bright colors in camp to me it's like it's just... taking it's like going to baskin robbins and getting every single flavor of ice cream that's batman forever is getting every single flavor of ice cream you can, putting it into one bowl and mixing it up into a big purple nothing. And then Batman Returns is like doing that and then spray painting it black. Batman Returns is like getting licorice ice cream and Batman Forever is like getting every flavor of ice cream and then having uh, somebody's dog crap on it. Um... One thing that I think is funny is that a lot of people come down on Batman and Robin for introducing the nipples on the Batsuit, <laughs> but it actually hit in Batman Forever. I remember reading in Disney Adventures, or seeing a photo of it in Disney Adventures, and again, even as a 12-year-old, I was like, this is, why is that there? His muscles, his nipple muscles are, are so huge, they protrude through the rubber. The molded rubber, yeah, absolutely. Um... Uh, Corey, what's your uh, grade for Batman Forever? Uh, you know, with the benefit of uh, life experience now, um, I'm not nine years old anymore, and I think this movie is pretty much a total mess. Not the worst mess uh, of the Batman franchise, but, but pretty close, so I'd give it a D. Wow, okay. Uh, Craig, what do, you, what do you score Batman Forever? Oh, it's definitely, um, it's below a two. I don't even know if I'd give it a two out of four. I would, I would definitely give it a one and a half. Maybe a two. Maybe. Wow, okay. Well, um, maybe I, I really need to revisit Batman Forever again. I thought I did recently. Um, but again, it, I just equate it right there with Batman Returns. I think it has the same problems, just with a different polish. Um, but I think that in the same way that that movie gets right for, it nails exactly what it's going for. I think this movie gets nails exactly what it's going for um so i'm gonna give it a b minus is the same thing i gave batman returns because it does give you some solid batman action scenes it does give you um a pretty pretty compelling and fun to watch climax uh and it's toyetic but almost in a kind of a star wars way where it still feels fun um, and plus, it you know it has the seal song, and that that gets it a full letter grade. Um, so yeah, so B minus for me for Batman Forever. Um, so when I was uh, getting ready for uh, Batman and Robin, I'd been reading all the rumors leading up to it, um, up to its release in June of '97. And uh, again, because I was a fan of Batman Forever, because I had actually wandered into the the realm of fan fiction i was really primed for batman robin and i'd heard somewhere along the line that schumacher was going to go for something a little bit more serious than batman forever and i was like well this is a perfect opportunity to strike the balance between batman returns and batman forever um 
and I was still willing to give it a shot. And what really primed me for Batman and Robin was a show that I had been watching for the last five years of my life, uh, and that was Batman the Animated Series. Tomorrow on Batman, when a miracle cure backfires. Why don't you tell them about me? A horrible monster is born. Let me help you. But this new creature wants revenge. Back off! And nothing will stop it. <laughs> Watch Batman, the animated series, tomorrow afternoon on Fox. as well as, as a child. Um, I don't have the DVDs, but uh, I recently borrowed uh, the first set from someone and, and have been sort of going through it. Uh, it's really amazing how well that show captures the spirit of, of the comics uh, and how influential that show has become uh, on the Batman mythos. You know, the comics, or, or the, the show introduced a lot of elements that have been adopted as canon by the comics, uh, like the character of Harley Quinn, uh, who uh, was created for the show and, and sort of revamped origins for Mr. Freeze and Clayface, among others. Um, 
you know, it's it's just so well animated and so stylized and and so uh, so entertaining even still for uh, for an older audience. Uh, I mean, it, it really is a terrific show, and it's something that I'm looking forward to going through uh, again in in in, in totality uh, very soon. Whenever you do that, I would really encourage you to keep going past Batman the Animated Series. Um, I'm a huge fan of Superman the Animated Series, and then that whole continuity continues into a Justice League show and a Justice League Unlimited show. And Justice League Unlimited is just incredible. Like, the, the, the way they, they structured the, the seasons, it's this one big continuity, this big conspiracy theory uh, thing going down. Um, it's, it's a fantastic... Um, achievement that they started Batman the Animated Series in 1992 and that continuity of that show continued until 2006 when JLU went off the air uh, Justice League Unlimited so um, it's my favorite iteration of Superman ever is the Fleischer cartoons from the uh, from the 40s Um, and Batman the Animated Series and that whole universe takes a lot from those cartoons and their fluidity um so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of this show, and I, I think that DC could, feature films, could really learn a lot from how these shows kind of created a, a comic universe if they were going to do an Avengers-type thing. Um, so speaking of kind of Batman the Animated Series influencing DC feature films, that was, uh, again, a big part of my anticipation for Batman Robin. Um, Corey, you mentioned uh, the re- um, introduction of Mr. Freeze in the animated series and uh, how awesome they 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 made that, how sad and, and, and grave they made that character uh, and it seemed like that's the direction they were going for Batman and Robin when the rumors were out, uh, Patrick Stewart was rumored to play Mr. Freeze um, uh, Poison Ivy, who was a character I was unfamiliar with until I saw her on Batman the animated series, was going to be one of the villains. So I was really excited for Batman and Robin, and then I heard Bane was going to be in it, and uh, you know I speculated with my friends that maybe they were going to you know kick off the Nightfall story in feature film form. Uh, obviously, this was at the dawn of the internet, so uh, you, you'll forgive me. You'll you'll forgive my you know fourteen uh, year old self for being a little bit naive. How wrong you were. And the only man who can stop them. Hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. Can't do it alone. Batman will watch his beloved Gotham perish. Bundle up, boys. There's a storm coming. Kill the heroes! The hockey team from hell! Cool party. Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, everyone, chill. George Clooney. I'm not the marrying kind. I know you've had your wild night. Good night. Wild doesn't doesn't quite cover it. Chris O'Donnell. Come join me, my God and me tending. She loves me and not you, and it's driving you crazy. This is why Superman works alone. potentially better than Corey and myself um what was your first experience with batman and robin and what was your first impression of that movie 
Alright, well let's get to it. Uh, Batman and Robin, my first impression was I wanted to uh, go to Taco Bell or McDonald's or whatever it was and get all those I think it was Taco mugs. Bell. Yeah. And I know it was during the summer and um, quite vividly uh, during uh, All-Star uh, season for baseball. So we were constantly traveling and uh, constantly thinking about Batman and Robin the movie. And it was just before the time just before high school, just before I started realizing that movies could be good, um, yeah, they were, you know, not, and not just stupid. And where, when I saw Batman and Robin, of course, um, back in the day, I didn't really think of it as a bad film. Um, but also, it has uh, Alicia Silverstone and Uma Thurman, and some cool mugs from Burger King. So really, uh, my impression of the film initially had nothing to do with the film. Wow, so Warner Brothers did exactly what they intended to do with you. Exactly. Um, so, uh, Corey, lay it on me. I mean, I was I was looking forward to this, and again, I had a lot of the toys for this one, too. Uh, and, um, you know, I remember seeing it in theaters and walking out not thinking it was the worst thing in the world, but uh, kind of, I was kind of puzzled by how comical it was how it didn't really take anything seriously, not even, uh, you know, this this is a testament to my 11-year-old uh, movie capacity uh, for, capacity for analysis, but I walked out and I, you know, I thought something like, you know, Alfred was sick in that movie and they didn't really even spend that much time on that, but I'm, I'm sure glad that Mr. Freeze helped him in the end or something like that. I don't know, I was really concerned for Alfred uh, you know, when you watch that movie again, you realize how half-baked that storyline is. But at the time, you know, putting putting a beloved character in peril was, was enough, I guess, to hook me. Even though, in the end, I found it unsatisfying. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of, I saw it and I remember thinking, well, you know, can't wait to see who the villain is in the next one. Um, and just sort of didn't quite write it off, but went home and put in Batman Forever on VHS again or something like that. Yeah, I, uh, I had to see this movie twice in the theaters to really grasp how upset I was about it. Um, and uh, the second time I saw it, I, I just walked out and I knew I'd, I'd watched something horrible. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to like it so so badly. Uh, it was um, nothing, not, even, even the stuff that should be good in the film. Like Alicia Silverstone, that didn't work on me, a 14-year-old boy, just because the way they shot her, the way she looked, it was just not flattering. Uh, Uma Thurman was not flattering. She's in a gorilla costume, I think, at one point in the movie, and it's just, uh, it, 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 it didn't, it just didn't add up. Um, looking back, I, I'm actually kind of a fan of the Elliot Goldenthal score for this and Batman Forever. He departs greatly from the, the, the Elfman masterpiece of the first two movies, but he still brings this kind of neat, brassy stuff to it. And I think, honestly, as an adult, I think looking at Batman and Robin, if somebody had made that movie with that production design and that score with a better script and not with Batman, but with, like, Power Rangers or something, it would have been a pretty cool movie. Bosler, uh, just Yeah, exactly. It's like a Boslerman superhero movie. And I think that could work, but the fact that they used uh, Batman to do that is is just horrifying. Uh, Corey, what do you think of the movie now? You know, um, 
well, I guess I should just say off offhand, just right up front, nothing about it works at all. But uh, in some ways, I respect it for being more upfront with its, uh, you know, with what it's truly trying to do than Batman Forever, which tried to have its campy cake and, and eat it too uh, by adding. I mean, this this doesn't even attempt to add any sort of. Uh, psychological or character-based uh, resonance whatsoever. It's just wall-to-wall nonsense. And it's horrible. It's really, just really terrible. But it's terrible in a way that I still find watchable, if that makes sense. I mean, this is this is one of those movies that, again, I did re-watch preparing for The Dark Knight Rises, and I laughed my way through it from start to finish. I mean, you, you put Batman in anything, I guess, uh, as you know, it could be terrible, and I, I'll still find time to watch it. I mean, nothing about this is good at all, but I, I find it hilarious. So at least it entertains me. It entertains me on that on that level. Craig, when, what what did you think the last time you watched Batman and Robin? Well, you know, in hindsight, it, it's a money maker. Not only not only are they trying to put every hero and villain they can in this film, they cast it with famous people, trying to get people to come watch it for whatever reason. Um, whether it be a fan of the comic or a fan of just the stars, also you know the the toys and the merchandise involved. I think of the uh, the big stupid Bane uh, in the ridiculously fake walls that he busted through, uh, and I think of Robin uh, getting too big for his britches and fighting the Neon Gang. Uh, I think it's all ridiculous and it's it's just it's stupid. Uh, nothing about it is nothing about it is good in my opinion. Nothing. Yeah, I can't even watch it in... I can watch Batman Forever and, and suffer through the, the campier parts and just uh, uh, just admit to myself I'm watching kind of a silly Batman movie. But Batman and Robin, I, I just... I just... I, I, I feel sorry for everyone on screen. I, I just... I have an anxiety attack when I watch this movie. Um, and it's... I'll give you that the opening sequence is kind of fun and funny with the ice skating and, and all that stuff at once Uma Thurman hits the screen it's I just it is painful um, and again it's just it's crazy at how they had it they had the material right there they even lift they lifted so much from the animated series in concept but completely ruined it and and geared it towards I'm not sure who I mean I was in the I was in the perfect demographic for this film when it came out, and it missed me, so I have no idea who was going to enjoy this movie. Um, and one thing, uh, the, the term toyetic, of course, became very popular around this time, and, and uh, Joel Schumacher in his commentary for the film on the DVD and Blu-ray uh, talks about how that's what the executives were asking for, were basically set pieces that would showcase toys that they could sell, because that's where they're making, that's where they were making all but what 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 what's crazy is you mentioned earlier, Craig, that um, for the Dark Knight Rises they have like these three different toys, these three different Batman costumes. Even though he wears one Batman costume in the movie, why don't they just do that? Like I don't, I never really understood that. I remember when the, the Jurassic Park toys came out, they had a Dennis Nedry doll. Uh, Dennis <laughs> Nedry, of course, played by Wayne Knight Newman from Seinfeld, uh, a hefty man, if nothing else. Did he come with a Barbasol uh, can? <laughs> no, 
he may have he may have come with a barbasol can but he also came with sunglasses and he was like big he was like buff he had like broad shoulders and he looked like he looked like arnold schwarzenegger in terminator 2 judgment day um and i guess because he was the closest thing to a human villain in that movie they had to kind of like make the toy that way but even when i was a kid i was completely okay with the fact that toys were a were a big departure from the movie that I was going to be seeing. So it's it's crazy that a 10-year-old kid made that connection in 1993, but studio executives could not keep their mitts off of a movie in 1997. Michael Uslam, that talk that I that I listened to, he, uh, I was one of the first to ask him a question because I just had to ask about Schumacher um, because he breezed over that in his little uh, lecture. Uh, and he essentially said, uh, you know, very classy guy uh, without throwing anyone under the bus when your initial aim is to sell toys. The film is going to go a completely different direction than anyone ever imagined, essentially, in so many words. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, the, uh, well, what's crazy about the, the Joel Schumacher comment, commentary is that he does come across as a very measured, very, uh, very nice guy, and he takes all the blame for it. I mean, he's very honest about how... Uh, you know, he was. He said he says himself he was awake for the whole thing. He knew what was happening, um, so he doesn't blame Clooney or Schwarzenegger or anybody. He takes the full blame for himself. So that that is a very classy move. Did uh, Michael Uslan talk at all about the the kind of journey from Batman Forever to Batman Robin? Like how he went, how it went from kind of campy to. Well, no. He, he basically he talks about how he came to buy the rights to the entire franchise and straight into making Batman, and then straight into the Nolan films, because uh, it was in 60 Minutes, and, and I needed to needle my way in there to get him to talk about yeah. Schumacher, of course, but... So he was like, and then some crap happened yeah. in 95, 97, anyway, <laughs> yeah. and then... Uh, gotcha. Um, okay, so, uh, Corey, what's your score for Batman Robin? I mean, it's an F, but it's also kind of not just because it's funny. I don't know. I, I don't have a rational response to this movie. <laughs> I mean, it is terrible, and that's obvious. But you know, it's it, it's got it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze saying "Ice to see you." Oh, jeez. So, is that ever truly an F? <laughs> I, I ask you. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm I, I was I, well, I was gonna give this an F, but um, I think your your point about the the comedy, I can't give it a full failure because it does nail exactly what it's going for. And I can't deny that, yes, those parts are, are funny for the wrong reasons. And you're right, this movie doesn't... The last thing this movie asks of us is to be rational. So, um, yeah, I, I would give it a, a D-, minus, like, bordering on F. Uh, Craig? Yeah, it's, it's hard to give it an F. Uh, one, because it's Batman, and I love Batman. Um, and two, because... I don't know, there's just something, something about it that... That it's a horrible film, but it's it's in some way watchable. So not quite an F, maybe a, maybe one out of four, maybe a half. So after this happened, there was a big fallout, right? Uh, especially again, this was like the birth of this was during the birth of the internet. This may have been the first kind of unifying film nerd hate fest. Yeah, when did when did the Godzilla movie? remake come out? Oh, like, that was the year after. Yeah, it was like was this and Godzilla. Oh, man. Yep, drew, yep. drew the geeks out in what, their wrath. What a Absolutely. great soundtrack, though. I know. Wait for uh, which one? Godzilla. Oh, both. Okay. Yeah, both. both. 
but I, I had both soundtracks. I thought they were awesome. The Batman Robin soundtrack had that Smashing Pumpkin song that yes, Snyder used. Yes, it bookended the album. A slow and a quick version. The also, end is, I should just say that the music video for that is amazing. The end is the beginning is the end, and the beginning is the end is the beginning. That's... that. The sentence you just said is so much smarter than the entire film of Batman Robin, just in its wordplay. It starts with, the end is the beginning is the end, and 15 out of 17 tracks, well, this is not the bonus track, is the beginning is the end is the beginning. And it's the same song, but sped up. Fascinating. It's a great album. I, I, yeah, I don't doubt it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh. does it. Does it have any Elliot Goldenthal on it? Or is it just songs? Yes, it's like it Bar does. Kelly and Jewel. Yeah, and Bone Thugs and Elliot Goldenthal. Bone Thugs, yeah. Wow, Elliot Goldenthal and Bone Thugs. So there was a big fallout from this, and uh, again, it was the hate for this movie was ridiculous. Um, what did, Craig, do you remember at all, like, did you feel like this was it? Did you want another Batman movie in this quote-unquote continuity um, what did you? What were you kind of expecting, or were you just like, well, I guess I'll just show back up whenever another Batman movie comes out? Yeah, I was. I think I was more of in that crowd. Um, when you get two, you know, crappy films in a row, you sort of lose hope. So, and and I was thinking earlier. I think about the the time of a, a quiet period for Batman uh, went by was the same amount of time it's taken for Nolan to make his three films. So I guess about eight years, maybe, hmm. or yeah, eight years yep, went yep. by, and you know. I was just kind of ready for whatever came next. I really didn't care all that much. Corey, what about you? I mean, it was about, uh, you know, 1999 or 2000 or, or, you know, around that part where I realized that as a fan of the comic books, I didn't, you know, it wasn't uh, required of me to just sit back and accept whatever interpretation of Batman was delivered uh, at the big at the big screen, I could actually get angry about it, and I, I had my preferences of how the character was because I started reading more comics, got into a lot of the the more famous uh, stories of, of the character, like the Frank Miller works. Uh, you know, I think uh, No Man's Land uh, was around that time. That was a big deal. Um, I, I became a more avid comics reader as I got into middle school and later in high school, so... I went from sort of like saying, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what they offer up for a fifth Batman movie to thinking, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but it can't be like that or I will be really, really angry. Um, and, 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 I, and I guess, you know, in 2000, the X-Men movie came out and uh, you sort of had that superhero film uh, reemergence right around that time, so... You know, when X-Men and Spider-Man became pretty popular uh, on the big screen again, um, you know, at the, you know, you start thinking, well, when are they going to try another Batman movie? Surely they're working on something. Though admittedly, also around that period of time, I was more uh, involved as far as geek advocacy goes with the Star Wars prequels and with, with the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, Batman was sort of at the back of my mind until you know, around uh, 2003 or 2004. Yeah, the, um, I mean, seven or eight months after this movie came out, Blade came out. Um, and I remember the conversation, or the, the rumors that I was reading, um, switched very quickly around that time. Before 
98, at the end of 97, because this movie made an okay amount of money, um, it didn't it didn't do all that well, but uh, it made an okay amount of money. I, I remember hearing that Schumacher was going to be back, and it was going to be called Batman Triumphant, which I think is a title borrowed from one of the chapters in The Dark Knight Returns. But, um, it... And there was gonna, the Scarecrow was gonna be in it. And it seemed like they had all these things laid out. Remember, Jeff Goldblum was was rumored for the the Scarecrow, um, and uh, they were thinking of recasting again. Um, we didn't really talk about George Clooney because there's probably not a whole lot to talk about. Do you guys agree, real quick, that George Clooney would make a great Batman if they adapted The Dark Knight Returns in like ten years? No. You know, I uh, I got I got a church with we talk about comics sometimes and he's always said if they were to make a movie right now uh, adapting that comic or that graphic novel that Clint Eastwood would make a great Batman and I kind of agree with that. Well I think that would be true like 10 years ago. I think Eastwood's getting pretty he's 50 in, in Dark Knight Returns. Oh he Eastwood is? is like, oh he looks, yeah, he looks yeah. rough. Yeah yeah I mean it's you know he's been roughed up but uh, <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I'm calling it now and uh, in, in 2022 Nicholas Winding Refn and George Clooney doing uh, The Dark Knight Returns. George Clooney's just got this, you know, winking style of acting that doesn't really translate. Not all the time, not in Syriana. Well, not all the time. That's that's true, but I, I don't think that... I mean, I don't, don't misunderstand. I don't want him to do this Batman. I'm just saying, I think I think it'd be an interesting kind of meta, meta-narrative approach to, uh, to casting The Dark Knight returns but uh, regardless I, I remember uh, uh, they were thinking of David Duchovny possibly taking over as Batman oh man um, oh. yeah really yeah I, I, I would have been all that. about that to be honest yeah I think I, I wasn't an X-Files guy I, I didn't I didn't know what it was about but uh, but yeah I knew who David Duchovny was and I, I thought you know he looks like Harrison Ford Harrison Ford was almost Batman in the 80s so. I was the world's biggest X-Files guy Oh yeah, so okay. that would have that would have rocked my world. But I remember it just kind of like you guys were saying, it kind of started to fade away, and people seemed to be forgetting about Batman. And uh, uh, the more time passed, the less I heard about Joel Schumacher's return. And then finally, I guess it just kind of fizzled. But I do think elements of of his the movie he was working on with Scarecrow, uh, I think, kind of stuck around on the desks of whatever executives were working on it. Uh, and eventually got plugged into uh, the uh, the next movie in the franchise, which we'll discuss uh, shortly. Searched in all the shadows. 
I saw it in high school. Yeah, I don't, it didn't really make an impression on me. Craig, what, what did, did, did you see? Did it go nowhere? Oh yeah, no, it didn't. I mean, obviously, it was completely unlicensed, so they couldn't really sell it or anything. So it was basically, it was it was a pre-YouTube YouTube kind of fan film. So it was just um, kind of like a dead end. Sorry. Oh man. Cut it. Um, <laughs> Get rid of it. No, no, that's staying in. That's it. <laughs> It's a Mr. Freeze level one right there. Um, it was it was pretty neat. I mean, I would encourage you to check it out. It's like you know seven minutes long or something like that. It's got some cool cool stuff, but it's it's clearly uh, you know low budget. But uh, it was kind of really uh, groundbreaking at the time because we hadn't seen a Batman that was that active, that dark, and uh, and that kind of moody, even even compared to Burton's movie. Uh, so uh, so I remember that one. That was in 2003, and then right around the same time, they announced, okay, we're, we're making another movie, and it's going to be this guy, Christopher Nolan. Uh, Craig, did you re- do you remember hearing this news, and, and how did you react to it? Honestly, I, I it's kind of fuzzy to me, this, this part. I, I, I don't remember hearing the news. Um, I just remember being super pumped that there was going to be another Batman that was going to go into some backstory, honestly. Did you, had you seen uh, Memento or Insomnia at that point? No, I, I had saw I saw those films after Batman Begins, if I remember correctly. Corey, uh, what what do you recall about this announcement, and what was your what was your assessment of Memento and Insomnia up to that point, if you had seen them? Yeah, I had I had seen both of those movies and and enjoyed them both, and was honestly kind of baffled, uh, but but excited that uh, they were handing the uh, reins of the franchise to this previously fairly untested uh, young director. I, I mean, I, I I was certainly excited by Memento, and I was excited by the prospects of seeing more films by Christopher Nolan, but I never would have thought, based on those films, that they would 
include Batman movies. Um, in fact, I don't think it, that anybody coming off of Insomnia would have quite projected how Christopher Nolan's career would go. But uh, I thought it was a good choice um, and was excited to see uh, where the franchise went. Yeah, um, I was uh, I was very resistant to Memento the first time I watched it. Um, two things probably impacted that. I was it just seemed like the cool thing to like at the time, and I was um, just coming out of high school, so I was really resistant to any kind of trends. Uh, so I thought that was uh, I, I wasn't really interested in it. When I did finally watch it, I watched it in parts, and uh, that that's a movie that really hinges on a, one kind of sit down watching. Um, so it didn't, it really didn't make an impression. It felt like a gimmick to me. It, f- it felt like, kind of felt hollow. Um, and then, uh, when this was announced, I was like, all right, let me go back. And I, I rewatched, um, I rewatched it and I liked it a lot more. And then I watched Insomnia and whenever in Insomnia, whenever the, f- the first few shots of that movie, um, hit and the, the plane is flying over that, the, the glacier in Alaska, uh, that's when I it clicked with me that oh okay this guy is he's he's not just a, a, some commercial director that had a, a gimmicky idea for a first feature or for a first major feature but that this guy w- was actually a, a really strong a narrative film artist um, so uh, so once I saw Insomnia I kind of perked up but I still was pretty pessimistic about the movie uh, I, I just didn't I just that Batman and Robin had aged horribly in my eyes and uh, I was a pretty big fan of, of Burton's film at that point and I really didn't think it could get any better than that and I'd rather that they had not bothered um, uh, Craig do you remember anything about the kind of hype leading up to Batman Begins uh, just that uh, other than the fact that um, my, my my future brother-in-law um, were, were such huge uh, Batman fans um, and that it was going to be rebooted and that it was going to go into the origins uh, and that perhaps there might be some legitimacy to uh, this new uh, franchise. I halted it saying rebootion. Um, but yeah, no, it's super pumped uh, just for the fact that we were going to get another Batman film. Uh, Corey, what about you? As the film got closer, were you excited or were you um, kind of skeptical at all? I mean, I was... I was cautiously optimistic when it was announced that Nolan was directing uh, based on his first or you know his previous two films but by the time they started announcing casting that's when I got super excited uh, I mean just unbelievably hyped up for it um, because the I mean and it really can't be overstated uh, the caliber of the cast that Christopher Nolan assembled uh, to add I mean, it went a long way towards adding a lot of legitimacy that um, the previous Batman movies didn't really have, at least in my eyes, uh, with the exception of possibly the first. And um, and comic book movies hitting theaters at that time um, didn't really have that sort of legitimacy either. I mean, you had the X-Men movies, which had um, pretty extensive casts, but um, Batman Begins, I mean, just assembled such a large roster of actors that I really admired at the time and still do really admire that it was kind of hard not to you know let your let the hype get kind of out of control if you were a budding uh, cinephile uh, like I was I mean just the notion of, of 
uh, Michael Caine and Liam Neeson and Gary Oldman and, and Christian Bale, who I had thought was fantastic in, in American Psycho, a movie that I had already seen by that point. Um, I was just, I was just really, really ready for that. So when you, when you first saw it, Corey, what, what did you think? I was blown away. I, I was, I was, uh, just so enraptured by the vision of a more, a more realistic Batman. I, I don't, I don't want to say that it's an incredibly realistic or reality based version of the character, because it's still a man who dresses up in a bat costume, but the idea that that a filmmaker would approach this material so seriously and ground it in some semblance of reality um, was very appealing to me. And I, you know, what what went a long way towards uh, sort of solidifying that were, were the performances. Again, uh, you know, the actors cast in the film just really sold that movie, sold that material, and and I thought that visually it was you know, really appealing. I thought that it was a, a vision of Batman as a character and, and of Gotham City that nothing else I'd seen had really even attempted other than, you know, the long-form storytelling of the animated series. And even that was, you know, really stylized and, and well, family-friendly because it was an animated show. This This Gotham City felt like a real place for obvious reasons now. Uh, Craig, what'd you first think of, uh, what'd you think of Batman Begins when you first saw it? Oh, I mean, I was ecstatic, you know, on the way home, we were just talking nonstop, and this was, you know, we watched it at midnight, of course, in Tuscaloosa, and it was just, finally, we get a, a more robust Batman and Bruce Wayne, a, a, a kind of a schmimy college kid who at first, with a, a preppy, you know, demeanor, that uh, and we realize he goes through some really, really crazy, harsh, uh, a gauntlet of, of just self-imposed training sessions, and then uh, the backstory that sort of evolves into his first and uh, biggest uh, arch rival. Um, I just thought it was amazing. I thought uh, Batman Begins had a, a perfect combination of. Sort of the you look at the cityscape. It was a, a combination of sort of a, a sort of a dreamy landscape, but really a, a, a realistic uh, vibe to it. Um, uh, but yeah, and and as far as the characters, so uh, well established and, and grounded, uh, and the big names blended. You know, they they didn't overshadow. They didn't come off the screen. I, I bought everyone in their role, and uh, watching him progress uh, with his suit. And his weapons, you know, it, what makes Batman Begins so uh, incredible, I think, is that uh, you don't suspend belief. They they come to you, and they and they kind of uh, it, they show you how they're making this possible with uh, Fox and and uh, that that whole department with the, um, the the weapons and stuff in Wayne Enterprises. That this is actual real stuff that we're giving you to use to to become this superhero. And, you know, the ordering of the uh, little ninja stars that are shaped like bats they, and the masks that break at first and they have to reorder. All of that is it, just building on this. It's giving you something to be grounded on and to, and to believe in as something that's realistic. And I think that, that's so important to the rest of the, the uh, series. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was, I was pretty skeptical um, going in uh, when I started seeing all the stills and, and even the casting decisions at the time I just felt it was really boring and I felt it looked really kind of rote and 
and bland. And, uh, you know, this was right after the, the rumors and everything were hitting right after Lord of the Rings ended uh, and Spider-Man 2 came out. And, you know, those were kind of big, very stylish, stylish, um, uh, colorful, production design laden blockbusters that were really fun to watch and that's kind of what i thought batman should be i i've i i still held burton's film up very highly and and it you know i love the iconic score and the production design and i felt like that's what batman needed to be and then i started seeing these stills and i just it's like i said it looked like a tv show that happened to have batman in it and i was very pessimistic um, so pessimistic that for, which is strange for me and still kind of is, they released a 10 minute preview, um, before the movie came out and I was like, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not buying into this movie. So I might as well watch this to decide if I'm going to go see it opening weekend or not. So I start watching this 10 minute preview and about 30 seconds in, they show the shot of Batman standing on the, um, building. Uh, after his first night, um, you, you know what shot I'm talking about? Yeah, the helicopter yeah, kind of flies around. Yeah, I saw that, and I turned, I like closed my browser and turned off my computer, and I was like, "Oh, okay, never mind. I'm gonna go see this movie," <laughs> because it, it was just the first time you you, you felt like Batman was in a, a organic environment. Uh, and when I watched the film, I I, I I have to admit, the first time I watched it, I, I still felt that res- resistance that it was. Um, it was kind of boring. It was kind of rote that it looked like every other movie out there. It wasn't upon, it wasn't until I I watched the movie repeatedly, uh, that I realized how intricate it was, how stylistically specific it really was. Um, and how it was so different from the other films in that the opening shot after the bat signal is formed by these bats that don't even really stop to, to give us what we, what we think we're seeing. The first shot in the movie is a moving, is like a blurred, you know, shot, a, a tracking shot of, of little Bruce Wayne running, and that's that was so bizarre for a Batman movie for me because these things had been so kind of stoic and iconic and and kind of locked down, and I thought that's what it, they needed to be to be uh, engaging, but uh, but I, I was proven wrong, and uh, again, it, it's just a, a compulsively rewatchable movie uh, that that paid off especially like the second and third viewings so uh, i really kind of came around on it um does it hold up for you guys uh craig do you do you still uh, get as excited about it when you watch it now as you did that that opening night yeah as a matter of fact um my in-laws were in town a couple of weeks ago and my brother-in-law who is now my actual brother-in-law and we were uh preparing for the dark knight rises uh release and we watched batman begins and the dark knight back to back and my appreciation for Batman Begins uh, just increased uh, after this one. And, and, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, in a little bit. But after seeing The Dark Knight and watching Batman Begins, it, it, my appreciation for the, the first film just gets better because it, it, it keeps each other in mind as they're being made. The Batman Begins is not just the, the reboot of the Batman franchise and this, oh, okay, well, where can we go from here? I feel like no one had some sort of, of plan and uh, and saw it through as best he could uh, in hindsight. But yes, to answer your question, I, I was more elated after several viewings. Corey, what about you? Well, I loved it the first time around, and, and it only 
I mean, I, I still love it now. They're only, you know, I, I do have a few minor gripes with it, but, um, well, one of them's not so minor, but, but I, I don't feel the need to get into that no, right what now. Is, what is it? What is it? It's, it's the resolution of Ra's al Ghul's storyline. I mean, just coming from a big Batman fan, the uh, I, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you thing. That just, no. Not, not, that's not Batman. But, you know, I can get past that for whatever reason in this movie just because everything else is just so overwhelmingly what I want out of a Batman story, particularly a Batman origin story. Um, I mean, the movie, the movie just moves. It is, it is uh, everything that I would want out of, uh, out of a movie like that. And even still, you know, I, I, know, I know some people who think that, you know, who, who liked Batman Begins when it came out, but, but think that The Dark Knight just shames it to such a degree that they can't watch it anymore. I don't agree with that. I, I still think that, that without the groundwork and the casting and, and, and everything that Nolan does in, in Batman Begins, I mean, obviously you can have The Dark Knight, and I don't think The Dark Knight retroactively makes Batman Begins any less uh, amazing for what it does. Oh, yeah, I think, I think it makes it better. It's a fantastic adventure film. That's, that's the thing that, name, you know, there aren't that many better kind of globetrotting adventure films in the last decade. Uh, outside of the uh, outside of Batman Begins, and it's it's the the pace, the tone, it's so self-contained, and yet hints at a bigger story. And that's one thing that I think Nolan nails in all of these movies. I'll show my hand a bit. Is that he he keeps in mind that there's a bigger universe and there's a potential for continuity, uh, but he's never going to let that get in the way of making a cinematic piece that sh- that can be experienced individually um yeah I, I agree with you guys it's it's it only gets better uh i just recently bought it on blu-ray and, and popped it in i was just gonna watch you know just a couple of minutes and it just I, it just blows by you forget you're watching uh you're watching it and it's it's great in ways in different ways than the dark knight um i, I don't think it's as thematically rich um but there is lots of theme based stuff that that really plays well I think overall, it's just a, a very propulsive, exciting uh, movie. Um, Craig, what's your score for Batman Begins? Oh, um, that's tricky. Uh, I'll say three and a half to four, only because it's it, uh, the following film is so good, and I don't compare them, but if, if when I give it a score, I can't give it as good a score, so I'll say three and a half. Corey, what do you uh, score Batman Begins? Uh, I I'd give it an A plus while acknowledging that the next movie is indeed much better. You know, if I had to give Batman Begins a letter grade, uh, it'd be hard. It, it kind of alternates between A and A plus. It's an A if I'm not watching it, but as soon as I start watching it, it immediately flips to an A plus. So uh, it's it's a great movie. It's it was at that point the the best Batman film I had seen. And it remains uh, such a fantastic, rewatchable piece of entertainment, and the uh, Blade Runner quality that that um, the Ridley Scott quality that that Christopher Nolan brought to it, it was just uh, fantastic, and really put Nolan on the map for me, where I couldn't wait to see his next film. This was one of my favorite movies of 2005. Absolutely, uh, even, yeah, even at yeah. the time. Um, Is it in your top five? It's in my top ten. It's not my top, top five. Craig, is it in your top five? Oh, I'm, I'm pulling up my Excel spreadsheet as we speak, and I will give you an answer forthwith. 
Corey, what are some of the titles that beat out Batman Begins that year? Uh, my favorite movie of that year was Good Night and Good Luck. Um, and then uh, I think the top five rounding it out was uh, Munich, uh, The New World, The Squid and the Whale, and Capote. Yep. Um, I also uh, really, uh, really liked um, History of Violence, uh, Pride and Prejudice, Brokeback Mountain, um, Three Burials of Melchiatis Estrada. Stealth. Stealth, uh, Stealth. Stealth just missed the top oh, ten. Man. Man. The, pl- uh, the, the movie about the jets? The Is that the jet movie? The smart uh, jets. Yep. Very smart jets. <laughs> awesome. I think, it's, I think it's in my top five. Um, I think Munich was my favorite movie that year. Um, I think I'm not sure if Good Night Good Luck. I think it's right under Batman. I'm gonna Begins. I'm gonna have to redo mine. Uh, it's not in my top ten, but that that was a that was a, a pretty solid year. Yeah, that was a great year. I was that was probably that's probably one of my favorite movie years in in, yeah. re, in the last yeah, decade. I had so. King Kong, Brokeback Mountain, Pride and Prejudice, Good Night and Good Luck, and Junebug. I'll admit I had King Kong as my number one for a couple of years, but I think now it's below Batman Begins. Pretty, Never on my top ten. Clearly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna admit that. Wow. Never, never. I, lo- I loved it, but I never went that far. It was. I mean, it, I, I, I was gaga over King Kong when I first saw that movie. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm older and wiser now. Three, three barrels uh, of Mark Milkyotis Estrada was a, was a overachiever. Still haven't caught up. With overachieving. It. I really wanted to. I really want. I still need to catch up with that. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. War of the Worlds was in my uh, top ten. Gotta love early Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, speaking of continuity, bravo. Um, That was a callback to our Super 8 show. So, so yeah, so that's Batman Begins. I think, uh, I do think it's interesting that people level it against The Dark Knight. I I, uh, I do think it's such a different movie. Uh, that it's it's really hard to compare them. Um, it's almost like comparing Indiana Jones to Heat or something. It, it just doesn't quite add up. scene in Batman Begins reveals the existence of the Joker and Christopher Nolan's 
cinematic Batman universe, uh, which is, immediately piques the interest of any casual Batman fan uh, and any non-Batman fan as well. Um, and I think you can add to that the fact that Batman Begins is so compulsively watchable. I remember in the summer of 2006, um, when Superman Returns was coming on, all the TV stations were playing Batman Begins like crazy, uh, I guess to tie into that. And I, it, it, it didn't matter what part it was on, I would turn it on, I would keep watching it. And everybody I knew watched it the same way. I think the DVD did very well. Um, and it was just, it's just a, it's just such a solid standby that you can pop in any time and, uh, and enjoy that I think it built this huge groundswell of, of fandom. Uh, just in, in mainstream audiences. And it actually made less money than Superman Returns, but because of its kind of propulsive nature, uh, it was so much more rewatchable than that one to, to the majority. The, of course, with the Joker, immediately uh, people were wondering who was going to play the Joker and how it would compare to Nicholson. Um, but from all my research, I've never been able to see if who... If, if anybody else other than Heath Ledger was in the running for the Joker, Corey, do you remember anything from that time? I remember a lot of rumors circulating, but I don't remember any specific names. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I keep reading that um, it was like Nolan was like Heath Ledger from the, from the get-go before he even wrote the script. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's pretty interesting. Um, what did you think of Heath Ledger going into The Dark Knight, Craig? Uh, well, first of all, if Nolan was on board with Heath Ledger from the beginning, then that should we should be able to put all of our faith in Christopher Nolan till the end of time. Uh, that just he knows what he's doing, uh, if that's the case. But I remember there being a couple of at least one Twitter uh, rumor or rumor out there that Heath Ledger was dead, uh, like a year before he actually died, and then uh, I do know his death caused. Probably the, uh, the biggest reason for the reaction of his being the Joker, and the second biggest reaction being why Heath Ledger. Um, but you know, Heath Ledger is—it was an incredible actor, uh, to be sure. Um, but I think my reaction to his being cast as the Joker was—I uh, I didn't know how great of an actor he was, but at the same time, I wasn't. I wasn't very skeptical. I was I was okay with it. I was just sort of anxious to see how he would do. I mean, I I I'll, I like to admit when I was when I'm wrong in the moment. Like I said, I was skeptical about Batman Begins. I'll go ahead and say that whenever they announced Heath Ledger, I was very confident that that was a great choice because of Brokeback Mountain because he surprised me so much in that film. Corey, did you feel the same way? Yeah, I felt the same way. I was on board from the beginning. Uh, and I liked Heath Ledger even even in The Patriot. You know, even I always thought he would make a really good leading man. Um, so, uh, Craig, do you what do you remember about kind of the hype leading up to The Dark Knight? Was it as big as I, I'm recalling? I tell you, the the hype for me is overshadowed by Heath Ledger's death. Um, and and I, and I'm I'm sure that only helped the film, unfortunately, but. Uh, I was I couldn't have been more excited either way. Um, I was saddened by his death and and what we might have missed out on. But I think as far as the Dark Knight's hype for myself at least, um, it it couldn't have been any better uh, because of you know Nolan's success with Batman Begins and and what we could we could wait to see for uh, the sequel. What about you, Corey? Were you were were you as hyped as, as everybody else, and, and was everybody else as hyped as, as I remember? I, I, just, I agree with what Craig just said. 
almost exactly. Um, yeah, every I mean, I, there was there was um, a fever pitch around this movie that uh, was only slightly sort of dampened when Iron Man came out and was awesome. Uh, I mean, even so, the the movie of that year of that summer was The Dark Knight in the eyes of most everybody that I knew and uh, pretty much everybody that I that I read online. That was the most anticipated film. Uh, Iron Man coming out and being good, and then also having movies like like Hellboy Two and and Wally come out earlier that summer. That was that was all well and good, but uh, but The Dark Knight was the big show, and um, you know I went to the midnight show of that at the Cobb, and uh, that was the biggest. Well, that was the, it's not the biggest crowd I've ever seen at the Cobb anymore, but at that time. I, I had never been at a midnight screening at the Cobb at which they had to open all 16 screens. I think that could have been the first one at which they had to do that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that summer was a, well, was summer was jam-packed with uh, with all these movies. Um, of course, uh, I I was anticipating Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull more than The Dark Knight. Wait, what's that? Um, <laughs> it's... It's a movie that came out like a week after Prince Caspian. No, no, it's not ringing any bells. It must, you know, not, must he, not have made much of an impression. Heath Ledger's casting as the Joker is 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 second only to Shia LaBeouf's casting as the sidekick in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Well, he had built up so much, you know, so much steam in Transformers. I'm a huge Even Stevens fan. Huge. <laughs> I think we all are. I think we can. I think we can all cop to that. Um, so yeah, so I, going into the summer, I was like, yeah, Dark Knight's coming out later in the summer, but let's, let's talk about Indiana Jones, y'all. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we need to talk about how that went. Um, I like that movie. Nobody else does, and that's cool. As the summer progressed, and all these huge, these, again, it was like Iron Man, Prince Caspian, Speed Racer, Indiana Jones. All of those were supposed to have been big movies. Obviously, Prince Caspian and, and Speed Racer underperformed. Um... And then for the rest of summer, it was like a huge movie every weekend. It was so saturated. They had The Incredible Hulk. It was the first time a major superhero movie like that was just steamrolled by all the yeah. other movies coming out. And then you had crap like Wanted, too. But, oh, uh, come on. Yeah, what's what's the deal there? I love Wanted. <laughs> oh, seriously? Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Uh, what, what, Craig, you're just making noises. Do you like or dislike Wanted? Oh, I, I liked it. Yeah. All right. Um... <laughs> Uh, I've got this loom here that tells me the future. <laughs> that tells me you guys are going to watch that movie again and, and change your minds. Um, no, so, I've watched it. I watched it the other day. I liked it. Oh, God. Uh, Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull is a much better movie than Wanted. Just think about that later. Um, silence. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so but we were shooting uh, our, our first film at that point I was producing it and I was super busy and super stressed out and um, I was basically just pushing off movies I would go see them whenever I could uh, and I was uh, I really didn't register with me um, and I our director of photography Stephen Lucas said he, he watched Iron Man and then he said I'm not watching another movie until the Dark Knight and I was like another movie in the theaters he was like no 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 I'm not watching any movies until I see The Dark Knight. He was, like, clearing out his headspace to get ready for this movie. And I think because of the hype, again, I kind of went into into 
resistance mode, and because everybody was bashing Indy 4 so much, I was I was resistant to the Dark Knight hype, uh, and uh, I I didn't really. I didn't want to get my hopes that high. Again, Batman had burned me at least once, pretty bad. Uh, and I, I didn't want to get my my hopes all that high. And I felt like it could really it could really go wrong. So, uh, but about a week before the movie came out, I, I got the soundtrack and started listening to the soundtrack. And I was like, uh, okay. And I started to understand why people had such a problem with Indiana Jones, is because it was so unabashedly a cartoon. Um, and from the second I heard the soundtrack for Dark Knight, of course, and saw the trailers and everything, um, I realized, oh, this is, this, this is why. This is because Indiana Jones is basically a cartoon that's throwing back to these movies that we liked when we were kids that are much better movies. Whereas The Dark Knight is actually a strong, it's going for a realistic modern tone. Um, and I, I forgot to mention that uh, in December of 2007, uh, they paired the Dark Knight prologue with I Am Legend, um, and that was the opening with the Joker. And so my wife and I, or my then-girlfriend and I, drove up to Nashville and watched I Am Legend in IMAX just to see that Dark Knight prologue. So I was excited for it. I was just, I just didn't want to get my hopes that high. Um, and then when I first watched it, I watched it uh, in... We, we had planned for the wrap party of our film to be the Sunday after it opened, and me and several other crew members actually snuck into viewing the Friday it opened and didn't tell anybody uh, because I had done so, so so much work trying to organize everything that I felt like such a jerk for being like, all right, now everybody wait to see it then, then I'm going to go see it now. So I saw it then, and then I saw it again on Sunday night. And uh, after I first watched it, I, I really had a lot to chew on, and I really didn't know exactly what to think. It felt so big. It felt like it was going for so much. I wasn't sure if it all tied together. And then when I saw it the second time, I realized how well it did tie together. And then I watched it again in uh, Omnimax, kind of the dome IMAX up here in Huntsville. And, uh, and that's when I was like, oh, this is this is a great movie. And uh, it, it turned out to be my favorite movie that year and my favorite movie of the decade, of its decade. Um, so, uh, Craig, when you actually saw the film, what was your experience and what was your first impression? Yeah, just glued to the edge of my seat um, at midnight, of course. And... I, I mean, the whole thing, I think, can be defined uh, by Heath Ledger's uh, performance and how excellent it was. And uh, you can go beyond that with, I mean, just the the realistic effects and the cinematography and just the, the, the di- overall direction of the entire film. I mean, it, it, you're taking Batman and you're... And you're being the film is being what Batman is. He's a he's a human superhero, and the film is a realistic as it can be film about this superhero. And what no one does so well, I think, without feeling contrived, is he puts so much into a movie as far as the story goes. He's at Hong Kong. He's doing this. He's doing that. Before you know it, the movie's over, and all of this has happened, and all for the sake of this story that you believe, and that's real, and that's chaotic, and at the same time, completely disturbing with the help of Heath Ledger. I mean, I, I, I just can't say enough about it. So it, it kind of starts and ends with, with uh, his performance as a Joker for you. Uh, Corey, tell me a bit, a bit about your first kind of experience with it. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the huge crowd and everything. What was your first impression and kind of... Uh, what did you come out of it? Uh, did 
and specifically, did it did Heath Ledger's performance stand out that same way, or was it all just equally just ridiculous awesomeness? I mean, the whole thing exceeded my impossibly high expectations. You know, even compared to Batman Begins, a movie that I that I do love. I mean, I I, I came out of the Dark Knight just feeling, you know awestruck that a that a superhero movie went to the places that this movie goes to not not only with Heath Ledger's performance which of course is is all that it's cracked up to be but but just the scope and the scale of what we get here of this big budget morality play and and I don't know modern parable that we have here and and just this epic crime movie that that somebody like Michael Mann would be proud of that just happens to feature, you know, my favorite superhero, you know, battling his uh his most uh, classic nemesis on just the biggest stage imaginable. I mean the the plot goes places that I never would have expected it to go uh as as a fan of of mainstream entertainment you know you don't expect a big studio picture to do some of the things that the dark knight does and it's just filled from top to bottom with excellent performances and and i still think that this is christopher nolan's best directed film uh from start to finish it just has a look and a feel and a momentum that is completely unique and i mean as great as ledger is he's he's one piece of this just magnificent whole does uh so going into the the plot of the movie just a bit does two-face work for you guys i i feel like the the kind of overwhelming uh, opinion of, about the film is that it's a great b um ledger is greater than the movie almost even though it's a great movie and two-face feels a little rushed uh craig did did you did you have you ever rubbed up against the way that they've they, they played with Two-Face there, or uh, kind of go into that a little bit. What, what did you feel the first time, and then how, did, how does it hold up now? Yes, I have rubbed up against it, and I am okay with it, and here's why. Uh, especially with uh, a viewing of The Dark Knight Rises under my belt, uh, what Nolan does so well with Batman is that he takes uh, the comic book world or iterations of a certain comic book character, uh, universes within a character, storylines, what have you, and he takes that and he takes his own fingerprint and he does what he, what he, what he wants to with it and it completely works. He, he can take something of what the storyline of, of a certain uh, graphic novel in, in Batman's uh, history and he can change it slightly to what he wants to do with his story and I think it works Perfectly, and you really see that in *The Dark Knight Rises*. But in hindsight, looking at the at Two Face, and I struggled with it for a little bit. Not that I was that, that I disliked it at all, but I, I questioned it somewhat. But now I, I completely see how well it fits in his in Nolan's world, Nolan's world of Batman, and what Batman represents. It, it's perfect. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the whole. He, he's making movies here, not serials yeah. that are in a franchise of some sort. Um, and I remember even at the time there's arguments there were arguments about whether or not Harvey Dent was dead. Corey, do you think that Two Face was handled well? I know you had trouble with uh, Tommy Lee Jones's brilliant uh, portrayal in Batman Forever. Yeah, I, I mean, brief or not, this is the you know the this is how Harvey Dent should be portrayed 
as as a good person driven to madness and vigilante justice. And uh, I mean, even though it, it takes uh, part in, in in the last half of the movie exclusively, uh, I mean, any more than that, like a whole movie surrounding Two Face, how much can you do with that character, really? I mean, as as Harvey Dent established with the Dark Knight, you wouldn't want to do that. And and I think that settling, I guess, that storyline and bringing it to the really moving and uh, shocking and uh, thematically appropriate close that it has uh, is the best thing for the movie. I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand that, you know, there are some fanboys who thought that, you know, why waste a villain like Two-Face in the last 45 minutes of this movie when you could keep him alive for a sequel, but, you know, Nolan doesn't think like that, uh, and and I really think that this interpretation of Harvey Dent uh, is the best I mean, it's the best one that, that I've seen in any medium. I do include the uh, animated series in that, too. Uh, as much as I love that storyline, I just, I think that it's never had as much thematic heft as it does in the Dark Knight. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Two-Face two-parter in Batman the Animated Series is one of the best series of episodes of that show. It's just so tragic. But yeah, here they he really manages to tie it into um, to the plot and into the themes and into the, char- the other characters, primarily the main two characters in the film, so so well and so tightly that it's it's... It's hard not to prefer this. And I think there's one really interesting thing about the character of Harvey Dent and Two-Face in this movie, but I'm going to bring it back up in whenever we talk about The Dark Knight Rises, so I'll, I'll get back to that later. Um, as far as, as the character of Batman, Corey, uh, as a comics fan, um, in this film we're starting to get further away from even further away from kind of what we're used to seeing in Batman comics. And I remember when Batman Begins came out, people were praising it because they said, oh, it's just it's so much more like the comics. And here we, we start to get away from the traditional um, storylines and characters and, and kind of traditions of the Batman comic universe. And The Dark Knight Rises takes it even further. Um, is this a problem for you? Is it, is it, was it a problem? Was it a prohibitive problem for you in the Burton films? And is it a problem for you here? Well, it's not a problem... Uh for me in The Dark Knight Rises because I don't feel like this deviates too far from Batman as a character. It ditches a lot of the iconography that we associate with the character. You know, Wayne Manor is is being rebuilt during this film. There's no Batcave. The uh, Batmobile gets destroyed, I guess, midway through this movie to be replaced by by the uh, motorcycle thing. Uh, And, and, you know, I I actually would say that the character of Batman in this uh, is... A lot closer to, you know, my my idea of the traditional portrayal or depiction of that character from the comics than even in Batman Begins, you know, because this is the only one of the movies, and I include The Dark Knight Rises in that category, that really portrays Batman as the master detective that he really is, and, and it has that element along with, uh, you know, Batman as the brawler vigilante and Batman as the scourge of the underworld. And then, you know, Batman who occasionally does battle with a supervillain on a grand stage, as in the finale of this movie, uh, the final showdown with the Joker, um, that's literally for the soul of Gotham City, as, as you have this fairy drama play out in the, in the bay or in the river below. Um, 
So no, I, I don't think it's prohibitive at all because I, I honestly do think that this is this movie gets the character of Batman more right than any movie has, you know, even to date. Uh, I, I mean, I really do think that that it's exceptional. I, I guess I should mention that um, the year The Dark Knight came out, Matt Scalisi, Film Nerds, and I did a Film Nerd series on uh, prestige blockbusters where basically we talked about big money makers that were also kind of artistically viable um, and it was all inspired by the dark knight uh, and and about it was inspired by the the fact that for the first time in several years we had gotten a huge expensive hollywood blockbuster that also uh, went to very thematically rich places and really morally amb- ambiguous um, character arcs and uh, uh, that was my big thing about the Dark Knight at the time and that's that's as a film fan that's one of my favorite things is when a, a genre movie can transcend its genre and, and really ask the same questions that you might see in a in a Ingmar Bergman film or you know or a, a, a more, like you mentioned earlier a morality play um, so uh, that that kind of gets me giddy, but as 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 we get further away from the Dark Knight, um, it just seems to age more and more gracefully. Uh, Craig, you you have a blog um, in which you do a series called uh, what is it, The Wizard of Oscar? Is that right? Yes. Um, where you talk about all the the, the different kind of Best Picture uh, nominees and, and films. Um, obviously, the Dark Knight was not nominated for an Academy Award. Do you think it should have been, and do you think it's going to be considered an all-time classic film that trans that that rises above this trilogy, that that rises above its genre? That, do you think it's going to be in a an, in the film? Nolan almost kind of pays homage to the classic Warner Brothers gangster movies of the '30s and '40s. Do you think it's going to continue to sit in that place or, or reach that place? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know. Um... At, at the time, it, it was at that place. It was a quite a backlash when it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, and at the very least, no one wasn't nominated for Director. No one who's at, at the at the butt end of the joke of not being nominated for Best Director when he should have been. Um, and I and I, currently, I have a schedule of when I will finish my project, uh, Lord Willing, and I believe I will get to 2008 and 2014. Um, so <laughs> when I get there, I'm quite confident I will be able to answer that question the same as I am now, and that yes, it should have been nominated, and and it was number one on my top ten of that year. What about you, Corey? Where did it fit into your uh, top ten of 2008? My number two. Number two. Number one was Synecdoche, New York. No, uh, number one. <laughs> actually, number that was my number three. Oh, it's in my top ten. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, pers- I just figured I'd take a stab at it. No, my favorite movie of that year was The Wrestler. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, really? Yep. <laughs> right on. Pretty, um, pretty crazy about that movie. I mean, I, I think I would probably change that now, though, because I to answer the question... <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the question I'm asking, I guess. The Wrestler, uh, number five on mine, so it's definitely up there for me. Yeah, it's, it's I think, seven or eight on my list. I, 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 would, I would say, though, that The, the Dark Knight... Yeah, it, it has the right stuff to uh, to last. Um, I actually walked out of this midnight screening. This is something that my wife reminded me of many times in the months leading up to The Dark Knight Rises. I walked out of the midnight screening in 2008 from, from The Dark Knight, and I said to her, all right, that's it. We'll stop there. 
Uh, yep. Because I kind of thought that, and I, you know what, I, I kind of still think this, that they'd said all they needed to say not only about Batman in The Dark Knight, but but also kind of the superhero genre in general. I didn't. I, I mean, I still don't see how that that uh, that character or really any character in that genre is ever going to be as socially relevant or as captivating uh, to an audience as that film presented Batman uh, and and its entire sort of massive tableau. Uh, I don't I don't see how. I mean, I, I really think that's the pinnacle of the genre to date. If it's succeeded, then we'll have two amazing masterpieces of the genre uh, instead of just the one, which will be very good for everybody. But I, I, would, I would love to see it exceeded. I just don't see how that's ever going to happen. So do you think they should have stopped making westerns after The Searchers? Possibly. Because, because what? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so you would give up Butch Cassidy, uh, Unforgiven, Wild Bunch... No, I, I mean, I, I, see, I see your point. I see your point, but, but, I mean, it just felt to me at the time, and I don't know that I totally disagree with this, that everything else just feels redundant now. I mean, I, you know, they showed the trailer for the Watchmen film in front of the Dark Knight, uh, and, you know, I kind of had a hope that that, which is regarded as the ultimate deconstruction of the superhero genre... On the on the page, would translate to something similar for the you know for the big screen, and it didn't. It felt to me, in a lot of ways, like a like a sort of weak retread of what the Dark Knight had already done. Now that's not the fault of Watchmen, and obviously the, the source material from Watchmen had you know existed long before Christopher Nolan came to the franchise. But it it just feels to me like that it it hasn't been improved upon yet, and. What I'm getting a sense of with these current uh, superhero movies, Dark Knight Rises accepted, of course, is that nobody's really trying. They're going back to fun popcorn thrills, but not, you know, not, nothing that's socially relevant. Which is fine because I'm I'm a pretty big fan of these Marvel movies and the Avengers too. But I, I just don't see the the superhero genre, at least in the years since the Dark Knight, being improved upon at all. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I mean, I would, I would, I would say that um, you said they're content to go back to popcorn. I don't think we ever really got any really solid popcorn superhero movies, um, except for maybe X Men Two and Spider Man Two. I think the the it if it reached its pinnacle, I think it reached its pinnacle in populism with Avengers this year which is four years later, but I, I agree that as far as deconstructionist social consciousness, it, 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 uh, it peaked at the Dark Knight and has continued to fail since then in films like The Watchmen, which I do like, but I, it didn't really hit a nerve with, with the public, and Kick-Ass, which is just, in my opinion, a bad movie. It's garbage. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, it did, uh, so The Dark Knight is my favorite film of the 2000s. Um, does it fall into your guys' top tens at all for, for the 2000? What about you, Corey? I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a top ten list of the decade. I imagine it would make the top ten, probably. There must be some error with this list. Uh, it's unupdated from for a while, actually. That's, wow. 
Number one is Eight Crazy Nights. Well, number one <laughs> is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Cheat. But I don't have anything after 07. Well, thanks for calling that to my attention. That's what I'll be doing tomorrow. But you guys have a lot of work to do. It, it'll probably fall below There Will Be Blood or, or right above it. So number two or three. Contentious. Um, all right, so uh, real quick, I, I think this is probably just a, a, a formality at this point. Uh, quick scores, Corey? A plus. Greg? Yes, A plus. Uh, what? A four plus. out of four? A plus, yes, four out of you four. Can't, you can't change your... My okay. scale is on a scale of Richard Nixon to uh, Warren Taft. It would be a George uh, Washington. <laughs> so Taft is above Washington. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Corey, you brought up an interesting thing that that uh, I definitely want to talk to. In that, after after that movie, after The Dark Knight ended, I was with you. Uh, when it ended, I thought, or when I, after I watched it again and it ended, I thought, that's it. Oh, I, I give it an A plus, by the way. Sorry, um, it's my favorite movie of the decade. Uh, a plus. So, uh, but when I watched it, walked out of the movie, um, the second and third times I watched it, and even when I watched it on Blu-ray, I, I, I was with you. I thought, you know, that's it. I, I really don't need to see a direct sequel to this. Uh, if, uh, if Nolan moved on, that'd be fine. Um, I don't know if I need another one. Um, so I was, I was kind of, I was in the same boat as you. Uh, Craig, did, how did you feel? Did you feel like this, this story needed a sequel? Well, once the uh, initial elation died down, I, I feel like I sort of got caught up in the movie news of it all and uh, was uh, speculating on how, again, the death of Heath Ledger affected the, the go-forward of the franchise. And how frantic I pictured Christopher Nolan uh, throwing papers up in the air trying to figure out how to rewrite what he was going to do with it. So that was really kind of where I was coming from. Okay, interesting. Um, now I remember the fun thing to do after this movie was to speculate on villains and we had those idiotic rumors about Angelina Jolie as Catwoman and <laughs> Johnny Depp as the Riddler. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the Mad Hatter. Or the Penguin. Right, the yeah. The Penguin was the, the Penguin. Uh, Corey, I remember at the time you said something about uh, Black Mask. That's who I wanted. That's who you wanted? Yeah. Uh, that that, that would have been really cool. Um, Just a sort of a thematic mirror to, to Bruce Wayne, which I, I like that calendar that character a lot. Right. Yeah, and we kind of got that. Um, so, uh, Craig, did you have any expectations as far as what, what they would do next, assuming that a Joker might not happen? You know, I've always been a big Philip Seymour Hoffman fan, so, you know, I, and at this point, I had complete trust in Christopher Nolan, um, so anything that came across the newsreel as the next villain, I was going to be completely on board with, no matter what, I had complete faith in him, so Philip Seymour Hoffman being someone uh, was, was going to be good. You know, it, interestingly enough, uh, I'd heard a rumor of Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the Riddler, and right. so yeah, I that thought was that was would have been pretty interesting as well. Well, even before Inception, I heard rumors that Joseph Gordon-Levitt would would be the Joker as a as a recast. Yes, yes, yep. yes. And and he and, and was it? I'm not there. No. What? Oh, what was it? Oh, well, 
I believe Nolan cast Levitt in Inception after the death of Ledger, and I was wondering if Ledger would have been in Inception, because they do favor in their face. Absolutely, and they were both in 10 Things I Hate About You. Yep. <laughs> that, that cannot be uh, ignored. <laughs> so two of us were in, uh, in, in the same boat and not necessarily expecting or wanting or needing a Dark Knight sequel. Um, and, uh, but reality um, was, uh, was going to be a little bit different. It's going to be closer to what Craig was expecting in that a highly speculative sequel was on the horizon. of course, after the massive financial success of The Dark Knight, it would have been kind of foolish not to expect one. So I was, I was pleased that not only Christopher Nolan was Christopher Nolan uh, returning to, to do it, but he was closing out his, his interpretation of the character, that it would provide what was described as a definitive end to, uh, to Nolan's Batman, um, which is, I mean... To be honest, that's refreshing. You don't get definitive ends in big-budget franchise films, you know, all the time. You, what James Bond is stretched on for this long, and in comic books, there will never be a definitive end to uh, to Batman. You might have uh, the end of one storyline or, or one, I don't know, universe of the character, but there's always going to be, you know, 
several Batman books running concurrently with different interpretations of the character, it seems like. So you don't get that. And uh, the notion of providing that was an intriguing one to me. What about you, Craig? Did you, uh, were you excited when you heard about the sequel? Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I was just kind of, you know, ready for whatever he brought. I was ready and willing to watch. And like I said, I had complete faith in, in Christopher Nolan. Uh, and I realized this is his trilogy. It's, he restarted this, he rebooted this franchise. He rejuvenated it. And he gave it life again. And he can do what he wants with it. At the same time, I was thinking this could be Batman's triumph. Or he could have Batman just be stomped right into the ground and walk away and, and turn the camera off. And I would be pleased with either one. Yeah, it seemed like from the get-go, it was the big rumor was Batman's going to die. Um, and I think that that gave me reservations. I felt like that's kind of a stupid thing. Stupid, such a typical comic book thing to to do uh, is to kill your hero. And like Corey said, it, it's, it never sticks in the comic books. And we know it's not going to stick in a movie even if it gets rebooted. And it just seems like a cheap TV kind of gimmick to, to kill off your, your hero. Unless it's well earned. Um, so I, I remember that was kind of a rumor early on. I was, I was okay with the news. I was more excited about the Superman news. Um... And I think I was, I still had reservations until I saw Inception. Uh, and then whenever Inception hit, I was like, you know, whatever. Whatever this guy does next, it's just going to be great. This, he hasn't made a bad movie ever. Um, so I was pretty, pretty um, confident that, uh, that it would be something good. Um, as the kind of hype and marketing started gearing up, I, I became more and more kind of, uh, I avoided it more and more because I, I I had a strong feeling that it was going to go to places nobody expected in the third act, just like the other two movies kind of did. So I, I avoided a lot of the, the hype and marketing. But I remember one big reaction was uh, two things that worried me, I guess, rather, early on were the title when it was announced it would be The Dark Knight Rises, um, which uh, I, I think myself and Ben Flanagan are, are in the same weird boat of people that think it's just rise as, as it was for a time a very overused and, and weak um, selection for a title uh, rise of the machines the terminator movie and uh, rise of the silver surfer and, um, so it, it, that just kind of seemed like a weird cheap thing and then about i guess it was last year around this time they released the first teaser and it seemed like it was just cut together with like the first day of shootings material and some CG of Gotham crumbling. Um, what did you guys think of the title and the early, early marketing, uh, Corey? Well, you know, the title, I, I actually had this argument with Ben on an episode of Aspect Radio. Yes. Uh, it wasn't the, like, the best title, but again, after Inception, Christopher Nolan had bought so much goodwill from me that I, I don't care. I didn't care about the title. I mean, I, I really didn't. It, it made sense financially that they were trying to tie it to the biggest moneymaker of the franchise. And uh, while it w wasn't my preference, uh, you know, I was willing to roll with it. As far as the early marketing goes, I guess I never really expected to get any major glimpse of the movie that early. So the teaser uh, whetted my appetite just fine. 
it was what it was. It's interesting. I went back and watched all the teasers and all the trailers for all the the movies in this series uh, before I saw The Dark Knight Rises, and I and I realized how pretty weak all of the marketing was for Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, aside from one or two pretty cool trailers and one or two pretty cool posters. Uh, none of them really nailed it. I guess The Dark Knight had a pretty awesome string of posters at that that, that one point. But um, uh, Craig, what about you? What, what, did the hype work on you? Did you think it looked good? Did you were you did you get any reservations, or were you just all in the whole time? Yeah, I'm with Corey. The uh, the title is just sort of you know whatever. I'm fine with it. Let's just go. No one can do no wrong. Um, but however, I you know of course I being an avid Aspect Radio listener, um, I. I did agree with uh, Flanagan's assessment on the title. Uh, I believe he he thought maybe Gotham City would have been a better title, or, or just Gotham. And, uh, and you know, I, I completely agree that that probably would have been. But you got the keywords, the Dark Knight, in the title, and that's automatically going to bring into conversation these two films. As far as the teasers go, I I see that that haunting shot of of the back side of Bane walking towards a Batman sort of jumbling his weight on two feet with his hands up ready to fight like an old-fashioned boxer and you, <laughs> you can just you get that feeling any anyone that is familiar with the comics knows what's gonna happen you get that feeling from just that little glimpse that that Batman is is a little um, worse for the wear and he's a little uh, tired more tired than fighting any normal uh, villain and uh, that to me sort of it, it disturbed me in a way that just made me want to see the film so much more interesting um, so as as it kind of like amped up did I mean I think we're all kind of aware of the spoiler laden rumors that were going around some of which I think most of which actually ended up being uh, somewhat confirmed in the final film um, so the you know, the big one was, it was Talia al Ghul going to be in it? Was Ra's al Ghul going to be in it? Was Robin going to be in it? Uh, did you guys, were you guys aware of any of that stuff? Or did it, did it, if you were, did it bug you? You know, it, it, with a, a movie that I'm hyped up so much about um, leading into it, I try not to really dwell on, on what might happen or, or where the story might go. However, I, I sort of did with The Dark Knight Rises. And I, and I, and I sort of did think it would be pretty awesome and this is having seen Batman and the Dark Knight back to back the week leading up to the Dark Knight Rises how with 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 Heath Ledger gone and, and sort of the Joker storyline at, at, a, at a standstill where they could have a great opportunity to tie in Batman Begins with the whole trilogy uh, where Bane is sort of related to League of Shadows spoiler alert I'm not sure how we're doing that here yeah no spoilers everything is getting spoiled oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and 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 I sort of was wondering, you know, are they going to tie Bane in that because he's it, you can tell with the soundtrack which they released before that the chanting, um, yeah. it, I think we were meant to assume it was Bane's henchman, which it turns out it wasn't necessarily, but it, it, it's a it's a big crowd of of uh, backup or, or foot soldiers, if you will, and so I, you know I thought it would have been a great way to tie in everything nice and neat at the end and I think I thought it worked yeah I felt like that almost was telegraphing the Lazarus pit from the comics and from the animated series 
where it's basically this pit that grants immortality and healing uh, and death or de and or death to anybody that's not injured or dying. Um, uh, Corey, wh what did you feel about the story and kind of how did you f did you feel like you were hearing too much or did you were you protective of your experience or did you just kind of brush it all off? I don't know that I was overly protective. I think that I kind of felt from the get-go for whatever reason that the League of Shadows would play a role in The Dark Knight Rises. And to be honest, when Marion Cotillard was cast in the movie, I, I immediately thought, oh, she's playing Talia. I don't know why. Uh, because, I mean, I guess that did kind of go around, but, but it just made sense to me. And then, you know, they came back and they said, oh, no, no, she's playing a character named Miranda Tate. And, and my, my knee-jerk instinct to that for some reason was, well, they're lying. She's playing Talia. And I don't know why, but I kind of just knew that was coming. Um, not, not with any sort of official spoilers or anything other than just my own vague inclination. Um, I mean, I just thought that they would go there. Uh, you know, I never expected anything like a literal Lazarus pit as presented in the comics to be introduced into this more realistic franchise. Um, but it is kind of funny that we got a very uh, real and metaphorical Lazarus pit in this movie um, in its own way. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I didn't really know anything about the, the actual plot of the movie before going into it. Uh, the, the, the the ins and outs of Bane's plan were, were still a mystery to me, uh, even though I kind of had an idea of what, you know, what was vaguely involved. I didn't know where they were going to go with it, other than Bane would possibly do what Bane does to Batman, and that ended up being pretty spot on, too. The, uh, the, the thing you said about them denying it is kind of interesting. Uh, a couple of months ago, we were all joking on Twitter... Um, you guys might remember this about the track listing being released for the Dark Knight Rises soundtrack um, and we were kind of joking back and forth like oh watch out for number 14 Green Lantern you know comes out to Batman or whatever uh, and then Matt Scalisi tweeted oh you really gotta watch out something to this uh, something like this you really gotta watch out for track 13 Marion Cotillard is Talia Al Ghul and I, and I told him at the time that's that's probably just that's probably a real spoiler. Like, why did you write that? Like, you just you replanted that seed in my head because that's exactly what I thought when when she was cast. The same thing. And then he he planted that that idea in my head. He incepted my face, and uh, I just it just irritated me. And I was like, ah, I hope he's wrong. I hope he's wrong. And then in the movie, as the 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 the, the reveal comes uh, closer and closer, that yep, that's her. I was like, man, I cannot wait till I see Matt Scalisi so I can break his kneecaps. You know, if 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 only we were all so lucky to have Matt Scalisi plant a seed in each of us. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I've, I'm pretty angry at him at this point, but I can't stay angry at him, so I will I will accept future seeds. Uh, you're not afraid. You're just angry. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I brought it up to him the other day, and uh, again on Twitter, and he he mentioned, well, they had he had forgotten that he said that, and he kind of apologized, but he also mentioned that they flat out denied that that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was Robin. They flat out denied that Marion Cotillard was Talia Al Ghul. Corey, do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with with 
the, the filmmakers flat out lying? No, I mean, what were they supposed to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, actually, you're right. This was the big twist, though. We didn't want to give it up, but you guessed it, so... Here it is. That's the thing is, what infuriates me about this, and it also comes up in, in the story that hit a couple weeks ago about the um, member of the press that asked Christopher Nolan about the ending of the movie at the press conference to be released to the general public, uh, and he refused to talk about the ending, and he kind of was short with her from what I understand, and said, look, this is... I'm not going to talk about the ending of the movie because people that haven't seen the movie are going to read this. Uh, and it just, I guess it's just, I'm, I'm so much of a, uh, it just bugs me that the media even asks those questions to begin with and puts the filmmaker in that position. Craig, do you have any, uh, thoughts? Oh yeah. I, I, the week leading up to it on Twitter, I was just, I would read things that were completely unrelated to the film and it, it, it names were completely uninvolved with the film and I would concoct scenarios of the actors in the story and who their false names might be based on some random tweet I saw. I mean, I was a complete lunatic yep. lit, leading up to the film. So, yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand how you, you kind of got to that point a few months before. It really hit me <laughs> like a week before. Yeah, I mean, I've been like that for the last couple months. And, and for me, it is, it's that exact same thing. I, I just have to protect my psyche because... If I have all that information going into the film, and it hurt this film, honestly, in my first viewing, I, I as soon as the movie starts, I start piecing these things together based on speculation that I've heard outside of the movie, and it destroys my viewing experience. I can't help but kind of reconstruct the narrative or kind of construct the narrative in my head, and that's why I'm kind of, I'm pretty uptight about spoilers, and I went on a, a, a social media blackout for like three days before the movie just because I knew somebody would post something. And sure enough, I went on Facebook after I saw the film and people were posting things left and right that would have infuriated me had I read them. So enough uh, enough beating around the bush. Um, we're going to go kind of more freeform. Uh, I'm going to let you guys kind of just kind of talk about your experience watching the movie. And since obviously we're not going to do a retrospective of this one, we're just going to talk about our basically our first impressions um i'll let you go first Corey. as a huge fan of batman begins and dark knight which you both gave a pluses um what 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 do you think about the dark knight rises well i've seen it twice now and um you know i i'm just not wild about this movie in the same way that i am about the other two um i i have issues with this that are well they're issues that I never expected to have with a Christopher Nolan movie I think that the screenplay feels in a lot of ways like it's one draft away from you know Christopher Nolan's general standard which is to say it's still pretty damn good and uh, you know a lot more ambitious and with a lot lot larger scope than virtually every other superhero movie ever even attempted, but you know, the problem I guess with being a director like Christopher Nolan, who's hit the heights that he's hit, is that, you know, when you come up a little short, people you know, people notice Uh, and I think, I feel like he came up a little short with The Dark Knight Rises, which is one of the most admirable uh you know, really good movies that isn't quite great that I've seen, you know, in a long time. Um, uh, you know, I do have 
issues with it, but the fact remains that it's, you know, grand superhero filmmaking on, on a scale never before attempted, uh, with an attempt at once again at social commentary that the Dark Knight excelled at. I, I don't think that this movie really does that very well, though, but it, you know, its action and its thrills and its character work and its conclusion uh, really make it something special uh, in the end, even if I do have, you know, a problem here and there. Uh, and, you know, there, there are some creative choices that I'm kind of baffled by, and I, I, I think that the screenplay was written without Christopher Nolan's trademark, uh, you know, care and attention to detail. Um, you know, it, it strikes me as a bit sloppy in places and um, a little weird in its structure, but, uh, you know, that, that doesn't take away from the fantastic work that the actors are doing. And, um, you know, as far as, as a uh, thematic closure to this trilogy and an emotional closure to this trilogy, it's, it's quite effective. All right, well, I'd like to get back to some of those in specific, some of your issues within specific. But uh, first, Craig, what are, your, uh, gonna, what are your kind of overall impressions of The Dark Knight Rises? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really liked it. Uh, of course, it was, it was never going to top The Dark Knight Rises. I mean, excuse me, The Dark Knight. And I, I came to that conclusion uh, long ago. So my my viewing experience is is completely shut off from reality. It's it's all about the film that's playing before me, and I I feel like Nolan. It, I feel like the Dark Knight Rises it captures more of that comic book feel, as in it it it's a little more lighthearted, although it is dark. It, it is dark at times, but it it's it it takes from the Dark Knight. It goes to a little more of a comic book feel. Where there, it's a little more wide range in story. Um, it's a little more global. It, the the script is, uh, you know, in, to, in order for a film to be great, this the script has to be great. And when the script is 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 truly above uh, average, then that opens the door for the other technical aspects of a film to to achieve that same type of greatness. And and that's where the Dark Knight. Uh, achieved so well is that uh, the script was so so awesome and and everything else happened to be right on par. Uh, the, you know the script on the Dark Knight Rises. I will admit it is it it, it is a, a bit campy at times. I forget what is that line that Batman says to Catwoman after she walks off and he says. Oh, it, so that's what that feels like. And he says it in his Batman voice and he says it to only us, the audience. And that's something Christopher Nolan doesn't do. Uh, that's a little out of character for the director. And that's fine. I can I can see past the, the plot holes and everything because this is Nolan's Batman film and I'm completely fine with that. To me, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a great movie and I had a lot of fun and... I, I can view it as that alone. Although there, I, there were small issues for me, bigger issues for other people, as I've heard plenty of. But I, I thought it was fantastic, and it was you know a great time at the movies, which you don't get a lot of these days. Yeah, I mean, I, the first time I watched it, um, I, I tried my hardest to go in not expecting uh, the Dark Knight again. Um, I tried my hardest, kind of measuring my expectations. But I couldn't help it. When I, as soon as the movie started, I started picking it apart and missing missing the story basically because I was looking for um, 
I was looking for how how is this as good as the Dark Knight? It's not. It's not. And then I would keep proving that to myself in my head as the movie was going and finding all these problems and, and applying all these spoilers and um, and kind of guessing where the movie was going to go. And then when it went there or didn't go there, I would either have a problem with it or I didn't. And it was just a very overwhelming experience. Um, but at the end of it, I couldn't deny the, the kind of visceral experience I had. And I, I, you know, I thought I kind of liked it and uh, I wasn't sure how great it was. Um, but then I realized about two days later, I saw it in, in Nashville in, in 70mm IMAX uh, on Saturday morning, and then I realized Sunday night I was still thinking about the movie, and I was still piecing things together, uh, and things were starting to make a little bit more sense, and I, I, I really felt, as, again, on my first viewing, it, it felt like a, a kind of a, a hodgepodge of disparate, tonally dissonant scenes thrown together. It started to kind of tie together, and I realized... I had a very similar reaction to Batman Begins the first time I saw it, um, where I was bringing in a standard, uh, and then the movie didn't meet that because it wasn't interested in, in making that movie. So I watched it again last night, and uh, and I, I really loved it. I really, uh, I'm not seeing a whole lot of specific problems with the movie. Uh, so Corey, I guess, uh, tell me. Um, you mentioned, okay, let's talk about the script first, I guess. You mentioned the, the script is weaker. Give me some specifics on why the script, and, and without talking about The Dark Knight. Yeah. But uh, How is this film, for what you think Nolan was going for, How what, what problems do you have with the script? Well, I think it's just structurally an odd choice to, well, one, it, it does sort of play against my sort of preconceived fanboy notions of who Batman is. As, as a Batman fan, uh, but just putting that aside and knowing that this is Christopher Nolan's Batman and knowing that this is the character established in two previous films, it still seems a little weird to me that the movie begins with Bruce Wayne sort of in solitude and Batman having been retired for eight years after the events of The Dark Knight. When It, it, it does feel, and I know that I'm trying to put The Dark Knight aside, but it does feel like that movie at the end sets up a very different chapter than what we are presented with at the beginning of The Dark Knight Rises, which is to say Batman as fugitive, not Batman as non-existent entity hiding in Wayne Manor. Um, I, I find that strange, not not only from a character standpoint, but also from uh, a structural standpoint, because Batman spends the first hour of the film coming back and getting back into the groove of things only to be immediately broken by Bane and spending the second hour of the film roughly trying to train and get back in shape to come back as well. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that probably could have been, I don't know, condensed or changed in some way to not have what accounts to two Rocky Three style montages. Not that this movie does that, but you know what I mean. Uh, and, and, you know, my, my second big problem with the movie... Uh, I, I like Bane's plan. I think it's really interesting, but the fact that Bane tells Batman and thus the audience exactly what he's going to do in regards to, you know, faking revolution only to then promptly blow everybody up feels like a missed opportunity to me. You know, when you think about what could have changed in this movie if Bane came to Gotham uh, and presented himself 
to not only the people of Gotham, but to the audience as a legitimate revolutionary, just to build some, I don't know, some some moral ambiguity in there, whereas with what's presented, we only get just Bane as, as Bond villain or as supervillain, not, not Bane as possible, you know, I don't know, anything else. Uh, I mean, granted, it is going to be hard for an audience to accept a a freakishly hulkish guy with a terrifying mask on as as a legitimate uh, revolutionary, but I think building that that sort of ambiguity into the plot would have made it more interesting. And if we find out that the fusion device is in fact a time bomb, when uh, the other characters do, I think that could have been more effective. And also, finally. Um, I'm okay with the Talia reveal in concept, but in theory, I feel like it comes in an awkward spot. And, uh, you know, it, while it's in keeping with the established modus operandi of the League of Shadows from Batman Begins as having a figurehead assume the role of leader while, you know, the actual control is elsewhere in the shadows, I think that coming right at the climax of the film undercuts that moment undercuts Bane as a presence throughout the entire movie and undercuts the, the notion of Marion Cotillard's betrayal, not that she had much of a character to play to begin with. Uh, you know, these are, these are, these are just problems and, and creative choices that I found kind of odd, but I, I do think that the climax problem is, you know, just a really big issue with the movie. Um, because, you know, even if you don't know who Talia Al Ghul is. The fact is, Marianne Cotillard's character is such a non-entity throughout the you know majority of the movie that by the time the climax rolls around and you realize she hasn't done anything, you kind of just assume that you know she's gonna pull a fast one on Batman at the end. Just I mean, if you expect that sort of thing in your in your action films, like I think a lot of educated viewers do. Um, I don't know. I think. Uh... I think a lot of the stuff that I that bugged me the first time uh, bugged me because I, I made the wrong assumptions. Um, when whenever the the Talia Al Ghul reveal came, I assumed that that meant that everything that she everything that Bane was doing was basically told to him from her. But the second time I watched it, I got much more of the feeling that he is a revolutionary. He was he was actively uh, you know getting you know. Uh, causing turmoil in, in mining operations when Daggett found him, or for Daggett. So he is a guy that can uh, instill fear and instill uh, kind of an equalizing power in people. Uh, and that seems completely unique to him. I think that seems like a trait that uh, that he that Talia exploits. And I think from the flashback even, we see that he's an active character. He's, he's a a thinker and a, a, a planner, and he he has the wherewithal to get the innocence out of the pit, you know. So um, so that stuff worked for me a lot better the second time. Um, Craig, did you have uh, any issues with kind of Bane's plan? Do you think it kind of do you think he kind of turned into a thug at the end? No, I here's the thing. Uh, as far as uh, Corey's uh, comments regarding. Uh, uh, Bane as a villain and Bane's plan, I, I, I uh, they're well taken. I, I think, as far as revealing what his plan is, that is to say, I think the Joker in The Dark Knight, uh, you couldn't believe a word he said because his story changed at every turn. 
And Bane plays that role of that almost cliche Batman villain where he reveals exactly what the plan is and traps Batman uh, to have him killed at a time stopper. And so Batman can then go save the day because he knows what the plan is. So it's almost, you know, I don't know if it's an homage or, or maybe it is a cliche, but, but I think Bane fills that, that role well because I, I believe he, he really thought Batman to be broken and, and unable to, to come back. But I, I do think the uh, Marion Cotillard's role is, it, it, I think it does in the end take away from Bane and the uh, element of, of being a formidable villain as he is. Um, because this movie gets Bane right. It, the, the comics have Bane as not only a, an incredible, incredibly strong uh, opponent, but also uh, an almost genius uh, and incredibly smart uh, villain, um, whereas the uh, Batman and Robin film uh, was way off. But the uh, Bane here is, is spot on, but at the end when the reveal comes and, and you see a tear trickle down the defeated Bane's cheek, uh, just because a couple of tubes on his mask are, uh, have been become dislodged, that, that, I think that really takes away from how, how awesome Bane is. Uh, the same Bane that completely dismantled Batman earlier in the film. But, yeah, so I, I can see how that sort of takes, a, takes away a little bit from the villain. I thought Bane was a, an incredible villain. When I first heard Bane was the bad guy, I was a little skeptical, I'll admit, there because just because of he, he wasn't as well known as maybe a, a handful of other villains could be. But uh, I think Tom Hardy did a, an incredible job. I loved his voice. I loved how um, just how awesome he was at and, and looming and um, disruptive and, and scary he was. Uh, yet uh, calm and uh, smart thoughtful uh, individual and I love how uh, Tom Hardy played him as as heartless and ruthless but his eyes are never stone cold they're always always sort of questionable always sort of just kind of looking on as if to see what's going to happen not there's no just anger in the eyes of Bane uh, at least for most of the film yeah I think uh, I'm not I still don't have a problem with that that end moment I think I think it humanizes him, yes, but I think that his um, his his passion that's kind of revealed in that moment is it only under underlines the cruelness that he has earlier in the film. I don't know how that takes away the fact that that guy is just choking people out like with one hand and like he's just. I don't understand how that diminishes his badass nature at all. He's still the badass that he was in the beginning of the movie. Now you just have an extra bit of motivation that says, oh, he didn't just do this stuff because he's a revolutionary, because he he feels like the city is corrupt and broken, but he also is doing it for love. And I think, I, I agree that if the movie made the point that he was putting on a ruse the whole time and he just had a crush on a girl, that would, that would be horrible and weak. But it, it doesn't tell me that. It, it tells me that no this is just an extra layer to that guy uh one thing Corey, that you mentioned earlier about um 
Talia's character and about how up to the point of her turn, she wasn't really that much of a presence. I'll agree that in the, the last, I mean, I like how she was kind of like the, the infiltrating mole in the, in Gordon's operation. Um, but I, I'll agree that she was just kind of running around from place to place and you really didn't know what the hell she was doing. But I do think that she functions really nicely in the first two acts of the movie as kind of the representation of what Alfred wants for Bruce in that he wants him to be Bruce Wayne, use Bruce Wayne's power and kind of marry Rich and make this kind of super power couple with this woman. And I think she works well as that kind of potential escape for him yeah, I think, that and I think her, Alfred wants for her for him. Yeah, I think her backstory is written fairly well uh, too in that there's this, been this investment for the past few years into this contraption and it's been on Bruce Wayne for the reason that it that it wasn't put forth and, and, and brought forward. And so it, we're meant to to believe that you know that they've had some sort of financial relationship. Uh, she hasn't just arrived on the scene uh, that day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I really just like how she is the uh, she represents the good he could do and the good life he could have if he just embraced Bruce Wayne, but he's unable to. And, and uh, Corey used the, the term odd and weird several times in your description of the movie, and I certainly can't deny that. It is very strange to start this movie off with a Howard Hughes-esque Bruce Wayne who's essentially lost his job. It's Batman, and he's unemployed because he did he, he because of the work that Harvey Dent did, because of the the way that Gordon and Batman protected Harvey Dent, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's on welfare. And I think that's a really weird, but interesting way to start the movie and makes it so much different than both the movies before it. Um, and also Bane, just his, his voice. And like Craig was saying, his consistently active performance, uh, in his eyes and in his body. And he, there's this part when he has Gordon in the sewer and he's waiting on the guy to search him and the camera tilts down and Bane just kind of like twitches his fingers like he's waiting on like his laundry to get done at the laundromat but he's actually just about to murk some fools so it's just uh, it's I, I agree the movie is weird but I think it's weird in the same way that the that Thomas Hardy Tom Hardy's blonde robot woman in Inception is weird. I think it's Christopher Nolan's ability to insert these kind of things that are almost funny and make them horrifying. Um, any, any thoughts on that uh, from either of you? I, w- I was just going to say, I really do like like Tom Hardy's performance in this. I You know, it's just the character it just feels like build up and build up and then he breaks Batman uh, and more build up and more build up and more build up, and he goes out like a chump, and it's it's made a punchline of by by this little quip from Catwoman, and we're immediately expected to turn our attention to Talia and her escape with the bomb, as if you know, oh, that's the real threat right there. Don't worry about this guy. I mean, I understand that Batman at that point has already gotten his victory over Bane, has already fought back successfully, uh, but I mean, it just feels unsatisfying to me in a way that none of the other villain showdowns really do, especially a villain that's been built up as this, this, you know, warlord who's seized control of, of an entire city. You know, that, that just, something about that just does not feel right to me. 
I'll agree it could have used just a cutback to him, just a final close-up or something. But he literally just, like, gets shot into the corner and crumples, and, and then we cut to Catwoman's line. I'll, I'll agree that that, that that creative choice there is, is a little tough, but I, I know I told you not to compare it to Dark Knight, and now I'm about to do that. But I kind of compare it to Harvey, the ambiguity, the ambiguity about Harvey Dent's disappearance or death at the end of Dark Knight or even the Scarecrow's the Scarecrow just gets maced and runs away and Batman begins it's it's that kind of thing where Batman is just he's on the case and he whatever that 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 ship has fallen well so well he also on. he also rides off into the sunset with no hands on a horse so flaming horse yes yeah can we talk about um Talia's horrific death scene that was the weakest part of the film, in my opinion. I, I mean, again, it just feels like much she, ado about nothing. She just I mean, died. It was she kind of chokes it, it out. It was the worst of... death scene I've I've seen in after 1970. I mean, it does sort of harken back to her father's death, uh, somewhat. But I agree that it's not immediately viscerally satisfying, nor is the chase that immediately precedes it. Uh, as as good as I had hoped it would be. In fact, this sort of, and I know this isn't the movie's fault, but I just want to point out that I feel like we got far more of this movie in the marketing than I expected we would. Yes, absolutely. Yes, at, yeah, including, I mean, including like most, what feels like most of that final chase. Uh, I can't speak to that because I did not watch any of the marketing, but I went on YouTube on Thursday and the banner ad was a video of the bat flying around with the missiles chasing it. Talia was not in a lot of the trailer. I totally forgot Miriam Cotillard was in the film until I was watching it. But a lot of that bat was in there, and it could have not been in there. They really did show a lot of the movie. They did, they did. I remember when I watched the trailers for The Dark Knight, um, they showed that truck flipping. And I was like, well, that sucks. That's probably the climax of the movie. And I was delighted when I watched the movie. And that's, I mean, it's probably the best action scene in the film. Um, but it's its its just the middle point of that movie. You didn't get a whole lot of, like, the last hour of The Dark Knight in its marketing. From the, Absolutely from the not. hotel scene on, I feel like you, don't, you didn't get much at all. And with this movie, you get a lot of everything. I mean, you get... In, the, in at least one of the trailers, you get multiple shots of Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the orphans in the bus on the bridge. That's like among the closing shots of the film, certainly the last ten minutes. Again, that's something I had not seen. So, I mean, that that's really disappointing that of, 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 of you know, of any filmmaker on the planet, the guy that should have all the control over marketing should be Christopher Nolan. Uh, and I'm assuming he doesn't. I'm assuming that he, because he's he's pretty good about not revealing anything. I'm assuming he wasn't the one to make that call, so that that is that is pretty disappointing. Um, well, going back to her death scene, I agree that that was kind of, I guess, yeah, I guess Bane and and her death scene were a little bit his his I didn't have as big of a problem with because there was so much stuff going on, but her kind of choking out those last couple of lines and then kind of just twitching and dying it, it, it did seem kind of like a. A parody of a death scene almost um, how cool would it have been if whenever she went off the edge of that she closed her eyes like Ra's al Ghul and then the, the, the truck just smashed and she was dead um, 
and just to kind of mirror it back to Batman Begins, where he just kind of has peace with the death before it happens. Um, I think that would have been really cool. Um, but I, I mean, I, I feel like that's that's a nitpick. Um, I think one one thing that's interesting, and in, and in you bring up the third act, Corey, um, and this this lit me up the first time I watched it, and the second time I watched, it, I was able to let it go. But I, there needs to be a moratorium in these superhero films on a bomb or something in the center of a city needing to go away because we have in Batman Begins we have the the essentially the bomb headed towards Wayne Tower and going to blow everything up in um, Avengers we have uh, the the thing on Stark Tower that's going to blow up and then Iron Man has to go up and risks his life and sacrifices himself uh, just like the ending of this film and then in Spider-Man spoilers for the Amazing Spider-Man we have the, the thing in the middle of the city that, that um, the lizard is, is on top of. It just, when it, when it got to that point in this film, I, I, I started to react against it because it did, like you said, it felt more like an entry in a superhero genre than it did what the Dark Knight felt like. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it feels awfully ordinary even still. still like, it's, it's something that you would hope a filmmaker who brought us the Dark Knight could avoid, you know, some sort of, you know, there's certain tropes that just feel overused at this point, and that's that's one of them. So when that was revealed to be the cornerstone of Bane's plan, I must admit to feeling a bit disappointed. Even still, you know, I, I it's something I worked past in my second viewing too, and just you learn to sit back and and enjoy the ride. But you know, I I just have this lingering feeling of. I wish it was something else. I wish there well, but was. But at least, at least here, it's it's tied to Wayne's character, and I agree that whenever it's introduced in the beginning, in the first act, uh, you you kind of get the feeling that oh yeah, that's definitely going to come back. But at least it's introduced and it's it's tied into Wayne's character. In Batman Begins, they literally just set up the MacGuffin, and they right. like in the middle of the second act, they're like, oh, and then by the way, here's an, here's a Doomsday device, and then you know that's that's kind of leads into the climax. So I, I like that he's at least going for it there, and I. But I'll comp to the fact that it's clearly not as in in. Okay, so in Batman Begins, the MacGuffin is the the fear toxin in the the things in the microwave emitter. In the Dark Knight Rises, the MacGuffin is the the energy source that becomes a nuclear bomb. Which side note, I love the fact that the the five month thing that it's just decaying over time and, and gonna blow up. I, I like that twist. But in the Dark Knight, the MacGuffin is Harvey Dent, yeah. and I think that's what makes that movie a classic. Yeah, I is agree. that is that the the Joker and Batman? It's a very simple dynamic. The Joker and Batman are fighting over another character, and well, it's that's so brilliant. I, I just I, I guess there's no way for me to expect that same dynamic here without feeling like oh they're just copying the Dark Knight. I like the fact that they they went much more. Um, kind of straightforward in this one it's more it's more of like almost like a film noir um arc in that you have the two females you know you have the femme fatale and then you have the uh the nice girl and then they kind of swap roles at the end just like in a a standard film noir so this one feels much more like a straightforward adventure film um than it does uh you know a complex crime drama like the dark knight um, Craig, did you have any thoughts on the kind of MacGuffin, the kind of villain plot? 
Well, I, th I thought that it was, uh, it turned out to be m more simplistic than I guess I was expecting, which is not a negative thing necessarily. I thought it was, it was interesting how in the stadium at the football game, he went over the PA and said, here's the only guy that can deactivate it, and boom, I just broke his neck and he's dead, so you're all hope, there's no hope. And um, I knew this film would be full, full of despair, as uh, one of the track lists was called despair and I what I did think was cool how like you said it, it decayed over five months so there's really no telling exactly when it's gonna go off but there were decoy trucks constantly on the move around the city that made it interesting as to them marking which truck it would have been and of course the one they saw wasn't the first one they saw wasn't the one and so they were in a mad scramble to try and find the one uh, which that really culminated into a sort of a confusing Climax, which is I'm still okay with, but yeah, I thought I thought it was okay. Uh, again, when I'm really into a film, I sort of don't I don't let my mind judge what's going on too much. Um, if I don't really like the movie, I tend to let my mind do that. I was digging The Dark Knight Rises, so I kind of wasn't really thinking about it too much. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do the reverse. I, I, I overthink it the first time, and then I have to back it off. What I really loved was uh, the, the whole Gordon's army as he was kind of gathering that. I recently watched uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows for the first time. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. No. So good. Oh, my God. And it's that, that's what it was reminding me of is this kind of, like, resistance uh, army kind of building up. And I, I, I really loved – I did not expect the film to go as, as, as apocalyptic as it was going – but I love the fact that it kept going so much further. It, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think with Batman Begins, um, Nolan, at the beginning of the production, he showed he showed the production crew Blade Runner, and he said, this, this is our model for this movie. In The Dark Knight, I think he did the same thing, but with Heat. Uh, if, if he didn't do that, he at least kind of acknowledges that Heat was a big influence on The Dark Knight, and you can see that. With this film, I'm really curious as to what his inspiration was, but I'm wait. I'm willing to put money on the Road Warrior. Oh, I, I read about the movies that he showed the crew. I don't remember. I think Stalag Seventeen was one of them. Okay. Somehow, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, I did read about that. Let me see. If I mean, I can it's find it while we're it's got to be the the Road Warrior has to be on that list from Bane. Being like a Lord Humongous type to yeah. to the to the, the the truck chase at the end to even the dog fight with the flying thing and the trucks and and just the kind of the apocalyptic nature of it uh, and and the kind of Joseph Gordon-Levitt being the little Wolverine boomerang kid uh, <laughs> uh, kind of believing in this in this hope that's that's coming I, I think that that's kind of what stood out to me especially the second time I watched it and I love the road all right Warriors, I just so. found this. Um, he said that he showed uh, Sidney Lumet's film Prince of the City and uh, The Battle of Algiers. Well, okay. Well, I'm completely wrong. But, I mean, it's kind of hard not to read Lord Humongous into Bane. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Another thing, you mentioned this earlier, and I don't know if you meant this as a good thing or a bad thing, Rocky Three. This, <laughs> this is, I just recently watched Rocky Three for the first time. And uh, or all the Rocky films, except for the, the first and the last, which I had seen. But of all the Rocky films, aside from the first one, of course, Rocky Three is amazing. Like, it's why isn't good. anybody? 
why isn't anybody talking about that movie nowadays? Uh, it's just the, the simplicity with which it sets up its its story and how quickly it, it moves along to kind of these logical, illogical ends and the, the texture that it gives as a kind of a statement of the 80s. It's just phenomenal. And I, I love, actually, that this film does that. It does that same that that same structure where it kind of it it although he doesn't start out at the top but he couldn't yeah, you know, that's the thing me. i mean if we if this were a film of like batman you know sitting fat and happy after eight years of you know relatively easy work cleaning up the not very dirty streets of gotham uh and then he gets you know beaten by bane and has to you know recapture that spark i mean at least that's that's an understandable arc. I don't understand why he starts at the bottom, he comes back, and then he gets sent right back down to the bottom. That structurally just seems weird. It's not. It's not that he starts from the bottom. He just. He isn't even. He doesn't even exist. He doesn't even start from anywhere. Really. Uh, it's not that. I don't know. I just. I just really liked it. it. It's. It's another case of Bruce Wayne thinking he has everything figured out and then being completely wrong. Which is exactly how Batman Begins treated it, and which is exactly how The Dark Knight. He, he had the Joker figured out the entire film until he pitted Rachel and Harvey, or until he had Rachel and Harvey um, kidnapped. And and I, I just see that same kind of pattern, but in a completely different, new way. Where Batman knows, he thinks he knows exactly what he needs and what he wants, um, and has to learn the hard way that that that's that's not going to work and that he's not afraid he's not afraid at the beginning of the film whether that's because he's i don't know it seems like the the film the the, the franchise ties that to it it ties fear being the active ingredient in batman to, in the first film and at the beginning of this film he's not afraid of anything so there's no reason for him to be batman and at the end of the movie even when when he realizes that he has to let fear kind of motivate him again you know right before he makes the jump all the bats come out which i thought which the first time i was like ah come on the second time that completely worked for me um just thematically i think there's a lot more going on in this film than i was willing to give it credit for the first time yeah i mean that's interesting i just you know i i i just i give it points for trying you know it's like i don't feel like that is as thematically well integrated into this movie for me, anyway, as the themes of the previous two movies are. I mean, it, it's it's not that it's not there. It's just I just don't think it works that well. I think it's I think Batman Begins is. Uh, I think it has. I think where this film has a disconnect between the plot and the theme, I think Batman Begins has a disconnect just within the plot. I think it's just a little bit clunkier than. But I think Dark Knight too has has some plot holes and is kind of clunky in, in certain ways that you just kind of have to allow it for the for the the arc and the and the themes to kind of shine through. So I guess I don't know. I'm guessing I'm willing to give it the same margin of error that I have given the other films. Um, I, I I there were some logic gaps that I saw the first time that I that were solved the second time. But on the way home from the screening, I was like arguing very vehemently with my friend who was saying well you shouldn't uh expect a tight film like the dark knight and i said why not you know you've he's proven that that's he's made that the standard that's that's what he should be going for um one one plot hole that really killed me was how 
Lucius Fox at the end got the bat diagnostic from a vehicle that exploded in a nuclear blast. Am I an idiot for having missed that that was a, that was a secondary vehicle that they were looking at? Yeah, yeah, okay. that is an issue. I mean, I guess there was something, to, it was, maybe he used a server at Wayne Enterprises to fix it or something. Right, it was a prototype, and, and the diagnostic, obviously the software patch would not be on just that vehicle, it would be uploaded to their their thing. Either of you have any plot holes? I, I, did, I did not. I suspended my belief for the time being and just allowed it to just dance over me in the moonlight. I mean, I, I actually have a couple. That I, I feel like I've been nitpicking this movie to death, which, I mean, it's a movie that I really enjoy, but, but there are a couple issues, all of which actually surround the same moment in the film, uh, which is Bruce Wayne slash Batman's return to Gotham from, from the prison. Uh, one, I mean, this is one that doesn't bother me, but I've heard it mentioned a lot by people that I know. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't really care about the answer to this question, but, but it did get me thinking, you know, how did Bruce, uh, get back to Gotham city from wherever the hell that prison is in the desert? You know, it's not like he's, he has the money at that point in the film to, to do, to do that. Um, but he also didn't have the money to do that in Batman Begins when he was gone for seven years. Well, that's true, but he he also, I mean, given that the city is under siege and quarantined by the U.S. government, him getting into the city uh, instead of just back to the U.S. seems like an equally insurmountable problem. Uh, the second issue that I have is that as soon as he gets back, uh, he apparently takes the time to um, make a massive... Uh, bat in the side of the building with a large amount of fuel um, time that might have been better spent elsewhere when a nuclear bomb is about to explode and I understand why he did it obviously you know, yeah he if he hadn't have done the it citizenry he... and yeah. the police the, 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 his army was an essential part of the, his plan he had to gather them somehow and that was that right. how we chose to do that so I don't understand the, the problem with that Maybe time better spent, but also there's a, there's a line where Batman shares information about how much time is left on the countdown, and I'm not quite sure how he knows at that point how much time is left. I think he's right, talking he, to Lucius he, Fox. No, no, he's talking to realistically the only character besides maybe um, Talia who would know at that point. Um, and I'm not quite sure how Batman has any idea when he first gets back that there's only, like, you know, however many hours it is left before the bomb explodes. Unless he was just keeping up with it by himself. Yeah, that was one of my problems, too. Uh, and that that's kind of what I came to. Uh, it's when he's talking to Catwoman, when he first gets back, and he says, we have one day. And I was like, how do you know? Um, and I, I the way I kind of thought about it was that Yes, he he, knew, he he built that machine with her, uh, with her money. So he kind of understood how it worked, and he was there when Bane. He saw Bane on TV take out the, or at least announce that the core was was taken out. Right. So it makes sense to me that he would deduce that. But he also drew lines on the prison cell wall. Do you not remember that part? I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. I was like, yeah, that I was actually like, wait, helps. I actually don't remember that. No. 
Yeah, he didn't do that. That would have actually kind of helped if 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 we had seen him kind of have a cognizance about that. One thing that yeah, calculate half lives on the wall. Right. The... He's Bruce Wayne. But uh, the uh, the one thing that I, again I'm I'm giving the movie is the beginning or kind of close to the beginning when Gordon gets captured and he's in the sewer and Bane is and he's brought to Bane. I don't think they ever call Bane by his name. Then Gordon rolls out after he's just kind of like, you know, zonked out. He rolls out and kind of floats away. And then uh, uh, Robin finds him. And then Robin goes to Batman and says, Gordon was talking about Bane. How the hell did Gordon know that was Bane? Other than that what I'm giving the film is that Bane is so famous worldwide as a mercenary and Gordon as a law enforcement officer has seen his face and knows who he is. I mean, Because Alfred, Alfred seems to know a hell of a lot about Bane, too. Yeah, if Alfred can find out everything there is to know about Bane with a Google search, I think I think Jim Gordon probably knows his face. Yeah. Um, okay, well, enough of that garbage. Um, <laughs> here's a question for you guys. Um, Craig, do, do you think that this, this movie deals a lot with the fallout of the Dark Knight in that um, Bane kind of announces to the world the lie that um, Batman and Gordon constructed at the end of the Dark Knight. Do you think that anything in the Dark Knight Rises undoes the greatness of the Dark Knight? Or conversely, do you think it makes the Dark Knight a stronger movie in any way? Yeah, I think it makes it a stronger movie in 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 its... Uh... And it's not being as good a movie. It makes The Dark Knight a stronger movie. And in its uh, wrapping up the trilogy, it really shows just how great a solitary film The Dark Knight is as compared to the three films as one. So I don't really think it, it takes away from it at all. I, I feel like they, you know, did did well with what they had as far as Harvey Dent's memory in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, it's a little bit of rubber band storyline going on there, but uh, I feel like it just makes it better. And it does beg the question, how would The Dark Knight Rises be different if Heath Ledger were still alive? Yeah, I kind of wonder if that, uh, if the Scarecrow being the judge in that, that, if that would have been the Joker, if the Joker would have been the guy that Bane hands over all the authorities to. What about you, Corey? Does this undo or improve anything in The Dark Knight? No, not really. Um, it neither undoes nor improves upon anything. Uh, the Dark Knight is just its own singular vision, and uh, you know this. This is a, a nice conclusion to the trilogy uh, and to the story of Bruce Wayne. But but I think that the Dark Knight, just as a standalone film, is is superior and and just it stands alone. That I guess. Yeah, in the trilogy, it stands it stands taller. Um, so, uh, so Corey, you've, you've, it sounds like you've, you've, you hate this movie. Yeah, I know you don't. Uh, so you've, you've, I, I've, I keep pitching you these ways to nitpick it. So I'm going to hopefully give you a way to kind of go out on a positive note. Um, you, you're pretty well documented as being pretty disappointed with a number of the bigger releases this summer. How does the Dark Knight Rises fit into the summer movie season for you? Is it another another like me kind of thing or does it does it give you a nice second wind I, not at all i mean i i do think that this is one of the better releases of the summer 
this summer, at least for me, that's not saying a whole lot. But, um, I mean, like I said, to begin this discussion, a movie that has this much ambition and this, the scale that we're working on is just, I mean, that's something that has to be admired. And I like so much of this movie. You know, we, we, we haven't really talked too much about Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. I think she's the best part of the movie. And I think that's a part of the movie that a lot of people going into it were pretty apprehensive about. Uh, I, I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this movie. And I think that the ending of the film, particularly the way his arc resolves and, and even that little gag of a reveal, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's tremendous. I mean, and I, and I love the way that this brings Bruce Wayne's story to a definitive ending. Um, so as far as movies, I guess from this summer, I mean, this is one of the, one of the better ones, uh, if only because of the fondness that I have for this franchise and, and the way that I think it does right by it. You know, even if in the end, I feel it's the weakest of, the trilogy, the fact remains, I mean, what Christopher Nolan achieved with this trilogy and what he, what he reached for with this movie is, is far more, uh, worthy of praise than, uh, a lot of what we've gotten this year. Uh, what about you, Craig? Uh, has this been a good summer movie season for you and, and how does this kind of fit in? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a decent one, I guess, uh, you know, with Moonrise Kingdom really kind of, uh, making it a little better for me. Typically, I kind of uh, wait till later in the year to rent some of these movies, unless it's a big, a big comic book movie. But you know, Avengers was you know a lot of fun, and Moonrise Kingdom, and uh, I think The Dark Knight Rises is right along with all those. Um, it makes it probably a better summer movie uh, than average. Uh, the last few years, the summers for me at least haven't been that great. Uh, probably since, probably since the Dark Knight came out, uh, the summers weren't that great for me. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you. It's it's been a long time since we've had a just kind of a killer uh, summer like like 2008. Um, great. Well, uh, I think uh, I think I'm out of stuff. Let, let's give our kind of last thoughts and scores for the Dark Knight Rises. Corey, go for it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, there's just so much to like about this movie that uh, even. A nitpick here and there and, and, and issues that I have with it aren't enough to really detract from how much fun this is to watch and how exciting it is and how uh, surprisingly emotional in the end it, it all concludes. I mean, you bring to an end uh, a lot of character arcs that were, uh, and, and story threads that were built up through three movies at the end of this one while balancing, you know, about four new major characters and uh, it does right mostly by all of them. Uh, you know, while I'm not able to get past a lot of the issues in this movie like I am in uh, in the other two, it's it. You know, I'm sure that this is the sort of thing that get will get better, and I'll enjoy watching. You know, for a long time to come, even if I don't think it's quite up to the same level as the other two. So, uh, for now, allowing for this, you know, the the possibility that this could change, this movie would get a B from me. Um, with the caveat that I wouldn't at all dissuade anybody from seeing it. I'm going to give it, um, and, I've, and I've seen it once, and this may change with the second viewing. This may change come November when the uh, tidal wave of, of top-notch films comes in. But I, I'm going to give it a four. Uh, I was just enthralled with the film. I overlooked any kind of plot holes or inconsistencies that may have been 
in the film, just even if admittedly from a sheer fanboyness, uh, and I'll happily admit that, um, but I, I thought it was great. I loved how the story picked up um, with a, an overconfident uh, yet weak Batman who uh, swiftly learned his lesson and uh, regained his strength and came back to and, and fought to save the city. And it was um, it, a lot of fun, a lot of big moments, uh, incredibly action-packed, and uh, no one, uh, once again, fits a whole lot into a, well, two hours and 45 minutes isn't necessarily a short amount of time, but I think he does it well, even if it did seem a bit compressed in this film. But uh, I loved it, and uh, can't wait to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, it's, 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 been, it's really hard for me to kind of... Uh process this movie uh, and again it was it was that way for the other films and it was like that with um, uh, Memento too for me for uh, in terms of Christopher Nolan films uh, I feel like I'm always the guy that overrates everything um, but I, my grades rarely slip all that much um, I feel like this is a film that I'm gonna it's gonna keep getting better in my eyes uh, when I think about the action scenes that are phenomenal when I think about the thrust of the film that the first hour is literally Bruce Wayne like walking around and meeting people and it's still enthralling and kind of uh, and, and mysterious uh, the action scenes are except for the truck chase in Dark Knight better than anything else in the franchise um, it's Bane is for me just this incredible character that transcends James Bond villainry into something a little bit more bizarre, a little bit weirder, and a, a little bit more compelling. Uh, and I just, uh, yeah, I just feel like watching it again. So I, that that's a really good sign. It's probably they'll probably end up as an A plus, but I, I'm gonna give it an A now to give myself a, a measure of street cred. So that's it from uh, from 1989 to 2012. We've talked about basically every major iteration of Batman on the big screen. Um, where do you guys think Batman will go next? And kind of combine that with where do you think the character will go next, uh, Craig? Um, I mean, I, I guess I would imagine it would stay on the shelf for 8 to 10 years and then some uh, up-and-comer... Uh, overachieving director, promising young lad might take it up and uh, maybe not do as well as Nolan did, but uh, do better than what was done before Nolan. But uh, I've also heard rumors of Wally Feister taking over and Nolan possibly handing over his franchise to him, which I, I would had heard before that that you know, Nolan would be completely done with his own uh, trilogy and make it his own and be done with it. And uh, but. They seem pretty close, those two, so I, I could see that being the exception there, which would be pretty interesting. Wow, I hadn't heard that. that that's, I heard that he, the Wally Feister was thinking of directing, but I had no idea that it was going to be any sort of handoff. Yeah, who knows? Um, very cool. Uh, so, Corey, where where do you think Batman's going to go, and do you think that this material is kind of sacred? Do you think it can be revisited in any kind of healthy way? I know you 
kind of felt that The Amazing Spider-Man was a, a wholly unnecessary film, uh, as much because of timing and, and content as, as the character itself. Do you think that it would just be folly to return to Batman in any kind of similar way? Uh, may, maybe give it some time, but the, the great thing about Batman is that there, there are always new interpretations of the character that you can explore, new ways to present it. You know, I, what, what I would hope is that uh, another series of films, a reboot perhaps, would, would maybe go closer to the comic book origins or, or the animated series uh, presentation of the character, sort of return to a more stylized uh, interpretation or, or something similar to uh, the two excellent uh, video games that have been released in past years, uh, Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City, which are just these massive, uh, you know, adventure stories with Batman facing literally every villain from the uh, from the cadre of, of comic book uh, supervillains. Um, something, you know, maybe not bound to... Uh, franchise continuity, you know, there's there's no reason that we can't have a standalone Batman film, you know, in which he explores Arkham Asylum or something like that. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but what I fear is going to happen is that with the massive success of the Avengers, uh, all of Warner's resources will be put into a Justice League film, and uh, Batman will uh, probably be reintroduced or rebooted in that, I would guess, since that seems to be their priority feel like it's almost like easily predictable that they're going they're going to make a justice league movie after man of steel and uh and batman will play a role in that and it will be a different batman um and i think i would be okay with that um as long as as long as they make their justice league distinct from the avengers uh dc and marvel have different strengths and uh in the comics so i i really wish that the movies would would do that from what they did in Green Lantern. It didn't look like they were interested in that. They basically went the Iron Man route there, um, as opposed to going the Batman Begins route. To their all. peril. To their peril, absolutely. It, it, that did not work, uh, clearly. Um, so, I mean, I would love to see a Justice League movie with a Batman that we've not met on screen before. Um, and if they had, like, Paul Dini or, or somebody, like, write that and, and do what what they did with the Avengers in, in that they handed it over to a comic book veteran, a veteran of Marvel, as well as a, a pretty strong filmmaker in his own right. Um, if they did that, I'd be fine with it. But I, I, I think I'm less optimistic. I, I think Warner doesn't know exactly what to do with, with their DC properties unless a smart filmmaker slaps them around and tells them exactly what they need to do. Um, so, um, where, uh, where do you guys think Chris Nolan goes from here? I mean, we've really enjoyed these, this really hot streak that he's been on, I guess, since Batman Begins. You could arguably say Memento, but I know a lot of people uh, took a break from, uh, for Insomnia. But he's been on this kind of hot streak where he makes these huge blockbusters and then goes and makes this kind of interesting genre picture in between the Batman films. Um, what what do you guys, what would you guys like to see from Nolan next, uh, Corey? You know, truthfully, it's been so hard to sort of chart his career path, um, and his films have been so shrouded in this mystique before we actually see them that 
it's hard to speculate where he'll go and, and whatever he announces he'll do, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to even consider what will happen with that. I mean, you, you, it's like calling the prestige a film about magicians or, or inception, you know, a film about, uh, about dreaming, you know, it, inevitably the response is yes, but, uh, there's a lot more to it than that and whatever he does. And, I would imagine that he has carte blanche at this point to do anything he wants. Um, you know, I'm sure it will be thematically interesting and, and, and viscerally satisfying in the way that his work has, has been. Um, I wonder, though, if now that he's gotten the blockbuster thing out of his system, if he turns to, I don't know, uh, more traditional, I guess, drama fare or, or something like that. You know, I, I don't know that Chris Nolan is, as a filmmaker, um, interested in something ordinary, but, but you, you, the fact of the matter is, if this guy, you know, the second this guy turns his hand to a, quote, respectable or, quote, Oscar bait movie, he's in, you know, as far as that's concerned. Um, so whatever he does next, I'll follow with great interest, but, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be uh, very, very interesting. Honestly, I, I would have loved to have seen him try his hand at uh, one of my favorite novels of all time, Ender's Game. Unfortunately, some guy named Gavin Hood <laughs> is doing that one. Of X-Men Origins Wolverine fame. Right, yeah. Um, you know, only a, only a very, very talented, smart director like Kubrick or someone would be able to pull off Ender's Game with the writer's intent at heart. Um I would like to see him do an adapt. There's a ton of adaptations, a ton of sci-fi books that are some of my favorite books that I've read. That I would love to see a great film made from. One of another one is um, a book called Replay, written by uh, a guy from uh, actual Dothan, I believe his name is. I can't recall his name. Uh, Ken Grimwood is his name, and I believe. Uh, Zemeckis has been attached to that one for years, but it's about this guy that just uh, he has a heart attack and is reborn in his dorm room at the age of 18 and re- continuously relives his, his life making different decisions. And it's intriguing and utterly gripping. I would love for Nolan to make a film like that. Um, but, you know, it, like you said, he, he can do whatever he wants and him and his brother make a great writing team so it's just all up in the air but that's what I would like to see from him I would like to see from him just to pluck down some of the the better uh, books uh, that haven't been made into films yet and, and to just make them yeah that's that's really interesting there I mean he at this point he's in my kind of like working director pantheon with the Coen brothers um, with Spielberg, uh, where it doesn't matter what the guy does, I'm going to be there um, when his movie comes out. Um, I, just as a fanboy, I would, I would love to see him tackle... I mean, Inception was almost a Philip K. Dick story anyway, uh, but I would like to see him maybe tackle one of those. Um, Philip K. Dick books rarely get the, the, the respect they deserve on screen. I mean, we got Blade Runner, we got Minority Report, and Scanner Darkly, and that's about it. Um, so I'd love to see him take on something like The Man in the High Castle, which is kind of this alternate reality 
uh, of what if the Axis powers had won World War II um, and goes to these really kind of mind-bending places. Uh, and it also kind of brings in a lot of the espionage elements that he's kind of toyed with in the last his last four movies or so. Um, and of course, there's always that the, the James Bond rumor, uh, which would which I'd be okay with too. Um, so let's uh, let's close out and uh, quickly rank all, all these movies, uh, including all of the Burton movies, the Schumacher movies. We'll throw in Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, although we didn't really discuss it. Uh, if you've seen that one, and then the Nolan movies, uh, film nerds love to rank stuff and. Uh, <laughs> Even if it's completely stupid and pointless, we're gonna do it. Uh, so uh, I guess I'll go first real quick. It's 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 tough for me to for my number two. It's almost a tie. Of course, my number one favorite Batman movie of all time is The Dark Knight. Um, next, I don't know whether to give it to Batman Begins or The Dark Knight Rises. So today I'll give it to The Dark Knight Rises just because of its scale and, and its villain. Then Batman Begins, then Burton's Batman, then Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Batman Forever, then Batman Returns, and coming in dead last as Batman and Robin. Uh, Craig? Yeah, I think we're exactly the same. The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins. I threw the animated series right here. I don't, wasn't sure if we were supposed to do that or not. Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Yeah, I think if I if I included Batman in the animated series, it might actually go right after The Dark Knight. Corey, what about you? Uh, the Dark Knight, followed by Batman Begins, followed by Batman 89, uh, followed by The Dark Knight Rises, Batman Returns, uh, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin. Um, I've only seen Mask of the Phantasm once that was upon its theatrical release, and I remember nothing about it. It's pretty solid, man. That's what I hear. I think I had it... Well, actually, I had it on VHS, so surely I saw it then, too, but I don't remember it at all. It definitely feels like a TV movie. It doesn't feel like a theatrical film. There's other stories... Like, if they had made Heart of Ice, or uh, that's the Mr. Freeze episode, or even the Two-Face episode if they had extended that to a theatrical length i think uh i think that would have probably worked out a little bit better but it's still pretty dope and it's got an awesome shirley walker score i've been planning to rewatch it if i can get my hands on it yeah i mean i would certainly rewatch it in the context of the series sure. uh, but uh all right guys well do you have any final thoughts craig roll tide <laughs> that's what i was gonna say <laughs> 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 All right, roll tight. I'll, I'll throw that in, in as well. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for joining me for this extremely long uh, special show. And uh, tell everybody where they can find you real quick. Uh, Craig, go for it. You can find me on www.citizencraig.com. My writing is at uh, tusk205.com. You can find uh, the Aspect Radio podcast at aspectradio.net and I think that we might actually be planning to record an episode again All right. at some point in the future. Dude, it's almost like uh, Batman, so yeah. what's going to happen is you guys are going to put on a show that you think is going to be awesome and then Cinematrimony is going to kill you in the ratings and then you're going to go away again and then you're going to come back even better. And they're going to break us again. Well, yes, in this case, in this case <laughs> they win, that's true. Yeah. Um, they have the power of, of, you know, marital bliss. You can find me 
at thenocturnalthird.com. That's the newest film from Wonderville Films, which is screening at the Sidewalk Film Festival on August 25th at 10.30 in the morning. So uh, come see that. Um, you can always find uh, me hogging the Wonderville Films Twitter feed at Wonderville Films. Um, and you can find me writing various things at uh, filmnerds.com slash blog. I have a column there called Speculating a Hypothesis. And right now I'm kind of uh, every now and then throwing in another in a series of summer movie memories uh, entries. So uh, for Corey Kraft and Craig Hamilton and representing Film Nerds and Aspect Radio, this is Ben Stark. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>